Welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your host, Adam. This is your host, James. Exactly. And we're here <laughs> uh, doing an Instagram Live podcast because uh, everyone's sitting at home doing nothing today. So we thought we'd get everyone together without a, uh, while practicing social distancing. Uh, I don't think this it's possible to no six infect feet. anyone across the uh, internet, although James and I are well, <laughs> we're about three feet. Yeah. Uh, it's a little... Why are you sitting on the, on the edge of the chair? Or I wish you do you that for there? these things, yeah. So you have room with him to sit down or not? Yeah, I can come back a little bit. You can sit down. Oh, okay. Uh, there All right. How about that? Okay. But don't move that too much because you want to. Uh, okay. Keep it out of the shot. Ah, uh, yeah. This is my normal thing. Nice. Right here. That's yeah. a fantastic. That's a fantastic. Uh, Thank you. Uh, yes, much more comfortable. How's everybody doing out there? Any questions about today? I, I have just finished uh, several weeks of recording, uh, and we were going to continue. Uh, in a little less than a week, we were going to start guitar rehearsals on Monday and then begin recording. I think Wednesday, but we're going to cancel that for now. I think I don't think it's a good idea to ask anyone to travel right now, so we'll probably postpone a bit. But we're uh, largely uh, we've been working for a few weeks, and it's I'm really excited about it. Yeah, and I and uh, right before we came on, literally right before, that's why we were about a minute late. Uh, Adam played me the four songs again, and I heard them in the studio because I was there with them last week, Thursday, and uh, just fantastic. It's a uh, the four songs, sweet, and it's beautifully done. It's it's great Counting Crows music, and it was an honor to be in there and watch you guys work and watch you sing. And uh, it was interesting, too, because that was the day things really got bad, and Jim had to leave and Millard had to leave. There was a lot of stuff yeah, going yeah. on, yeah, in the middle of all this. Yeah, yeah That part was less uh, exciting, but uh, <laughs> yeah. well, I guess it was exciting. It was less positive. Um, yeah. So I want to get all my face touching out of the way. <laughs> I know, I know. I realized it myself. Uh, I, I, I really. It's, it's. Have you have you been out? It's so beautiful. Have you been out? Out where? You know, like have you guys been going out? No, I've been I've been working from noon till midnight six days oh, a week. So no, studio. I haven't. I haven't left the house except to go to work in weeks, and now that's done. So uh, we're we're staying home. No, and even on the days off, uh, we didn't go out. Uh, we watched movies here. Um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, normally, I used to freelance for years, so I was home a lot. So I know how to discipline myself, make sure I get up, get the work done. But now I've got to do stuff for my full-time gig, the media gig, and then <clears throat> Scott's home for homeschooling. And I didn't think that was being a big deal, but the school is running all these things over the Internet. So she has to do these projects. And it's like, Dad, what do I – so I have to help her with getting on – it's a whole – and my wife's been teaching anyway. She just actually wanted to plug that on here. So my wife did her very first virtual yoga class this morning so she this this place she works for highland yoga uh does you know if you go on their website highlandyoga.com you can sign up for classes and my wife did a class with a camera like we're doing now this morning she's like it was really odd because she went to the studio and did it in the studio and later bat out and did it into a uh, into a laptop which was very odd for her normally oh. she would do it for 12 or 14 people in a studio and but that's the new way of the world now yeah for a little while now for a bit yeah it's gonna be that way um, we made the huge mistake of watching Contagion last night, yeah, the Steven Soderbergh yeah, movie, which is a fantastic movie, but a terrible, terrible idea. I, I, it left me completely freaked out, which maybe is a good way to be right now. Yes. Because uh, if we were all a little more freaked out, we'd be a little more careful. Um, right. So if you guys but, go snorkeling, you'll watch Jaws, that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you go on an airplane, make sure you watch. I feel like snorkeling is the way to go if you're going to watch Jaws because then you can see what's going on underwater. The problem with Jaws is that you don't see him. Exactly. He just sneaks, he just sneaks up on you and all of a sudden you're like. <laughs> that's one of the problems. And, yes. the, and the other thing is people didn't recognize when you hear that music, that's the shark. And the music came on over and over again. Dun, 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 Even when the shark didn't show up, and that made it really cool. Either way, when you hear the music, you get out of the water. <laughs> yeah. I, I've never understood why people... If I'm on a beach and someone starts playing that song really loud, I'm getting out of the water. I mean, that seems like a pretty no-nonsense response to right. a situation. Actually, um, interestingly enough, one last thing about Jaws. So I was wrong. I misspoke. The thing that made that music so amazing was... You know the scene where the kids fake the... Fake yeah. The, the music doesn't play there. So he oh. kind of plays on you, you, and you, you know, but you, you know that the, he, you're right. Anytime you heard the music, because they couldn't show the shark, they used the music. Later on, they used the barrels, anything to give the audience an idea of where the shark was or that it was coming. And it's, it's, it really is fascinating filmmaking. But, so the, That's a great movie. You know, even if you don't have the shark, the dialogue is so good in that movie. Oh, yes. The filmmaking. Acting. I mean, Spielberg, that cast, that's a fantastic – it's a really funny movie. Yes. Um, the the – the, Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider and uh, Robert, what's his name? Uh, Robert, Robert Shaw. Shaw. Yeah, mm-hmm. are so good together. They really are so so fucking good together. Are you hitting the uh, the smoke on here? Sean is asking what this is. I'm showing What is it? This is the smoke gun that Felipe got you. Are you using my phone or your phone? Oh, I see. That's your case. Yeah. So we should say nice. for podcast listeners, we Zoe is our uh, is our producer here. She answers all the questions, and she put a wide lens on Adam's phone. So does it make us look fat? No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes it so you can actually see the both of you. In the so the, what you picked up there was what a, a smoke gun. Oh, yeah. yeah, Felipe gave us the smoke gun. Uh, Felipe Molina, of course. It's uh, magnificent for for Christmas or my birthday one year. For Christmas, yeah. It does shoot smoke rings. Yeah, so in case you're ever like, if there's a home invasion, right, and someone is a really bad, a smoke allergy, or I guess the early stages <laughs> of cancer, you could shoot that at them, and right. uh, they would apparently shy away. Right. Theoretically. Very good. Yeah. Or you trap them in a ring. If you shoot it from above them, they can't move, or they'll get cancer. I see. So do we have any questions? There are very few good cancer jokes out there. It's really a... <laughs> It's really a rough subject. It's it's no, it is. Yeah, it's always too soon. It's never. Yeah, I was gonna it's say it's too never soon. not yeah. too soon for that. Um, we have folks asking for you to sing and give a sample, um, Adam. Well, I was thinking about that the other day. About uh, it was suggested to me that when we do this live podcast, I should play some music. And I was thinking of actually playing Elevator Boots, but I realized I I I haven't played it since I wrote it, and I have no idea how to play it right now. And the cat is attacking the podcast. <laughs> it's like with a podcast, a cat is a lot like Godzilla. It's just, yeah, yeah. We should mention that Adam and Zoe now have have gone from what is it? What is it again? One to three. One yeah. to three. But what what is it? This is the thing I keep warning my wife not to do. Which oh, is we we fostered cats. Fostering cats. I had a theory about fostering cats that fostering cats were just all known in cats. And it, I mean, we resisted for I want to say maybe fifteen to twenty minutes. After we first started fostering the cats, before we were like, well, kittens. Knock it off. They were very small and cute then. They're still cute. They're not as small. No. Um, These cats are getting big. But, yeah, kittens. There's really no way around kittens. When kittens appear, you don't want to give them up. Yeah. I don't know how the woman who had them, I, I admire her because she fosters a lot of kittens, I think. And 
somehow she's able to foster them and then give them to other. That's just insane to me. I, ca- I can't see how you do it. I don't want to ever foster kittens again. I will have so many. I don't want to be cat people. I, I pro- appreciate both of you because I have warned my wife and my daughter against this. We're cat nuts. And uh, we already have three. So I don't need any more. Although my wife made a deal with me if one of the cats, well, when one of the cats pass, uh, I'm owed a black male cat because I had two and they both are gone now. So I'm supposed to pick next, but we have Bukowski now who just wandered in from the outside. So he sort of adopted a semi-feral cat and he's perfectly fine now. He's in the house. He's doing his thing. But I also have my own rule, which is three cats is enough. I don't want to be outnumbered by felines. Is that so wrong? Yeah, I I know it's not wrong. It's it's a perfectly legitimate fear. Yeah, I have the same problem with CDs and DVDs as cats. Like if I get one, I, I just have to keep it, and then there's a pile of like it's an early hoarding thing, I guess. Mm. I don't know. I love to hoard music, though. I'll take it. Every yeah. Time. You got any questions out there? And oh, you had that one about play. Yeah, so I don't know how to play it right now. I I, th- I might practice it and learn it. And next time we do one of these, I'll I'll be able to play something. I will say it is an amazing transition. Um, uh, that I've been privy to of what Adam does when he writes the songs and he makes a demo of just him on the piano, which he did in England, and then brings it to the guys. And when I asked him, I said, oh, are these going to be mostly piano songs? He said, absolutely not. They're going to be full guitar. You know, I have it in my head. And I didn't really hear it because I thought they were really good the way they were. I guess I have the, what you call demo-itis. When you hear something, you're like, oh, I love that version. But then they're just so much more spectacular with the whole band playing. And it's exactly, is that exactly how you guys normally Make Counting Crows music. Uh, well, I mean, there's been songs we started with other groupings. But yeah, I mean, I write on piano, but I generally hear guitar in my head. I don't like the way I play piano very much, so uh, mostly because it sucks. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, they were never intended to sound anything like my demos. I had a problem with the band when we were recording a bit where they were a little too attached to the feel of, of one of the demos, and it really made it a struggle to... Uh, get them off of that so that we could play the song the way I, I wanted it to sound, you know, because <clears throat> the, the feel was so shitty. I, I can't play a lot of different ways because I'm pretty limited as a piano player. And one of the songs, Elevator Boots, was really stuck on my original feel and it was really hard to get everybody off of that. Um, we didn't struggle as much with the other ones, but that one was really hard because of it. Yeah. That's funny because you get the greatest compliment. They're like, let's not mess this up. And you're like, no. It needs to be this. No, you're messing it up. <laughs> you're yeah. messing it up. No, right I, I said, I, I, what happened? What? Did we go dark? <laughs> we don't know what happened yet, so. Sorry. I meant to click the question button and it just turned the camera around on me. I'm very sorry. Oh, that's okay. You should say hello to everyone. As long as we're still taping. All right. We had a bit of a glitch there. We're still taping. Yes. Okay, was there a question? You want to... Yeah. Uh, well, it's a four-song suite. Each song uh, was written to flow directly into the next song. Um, Hence sweet. Uh, I wrote them in pieces like that, like it, with the idea that the end of one would be the beginning of the other. I mean, it actually kind of got started on each song by how I ended the one before it somewhat. I mean, not on all of them, but that was kind of the idea. So they will flow as as one piece of music, but there are four songs. Um, and they're, I don't know... It begins with a little drum loop going something like that. The camera hot goes beep boop boop Um 
I, I wanted it to be kind of a uh, glam, not like '90s glam, but uh, I don't know. I was kind of thinking about Mott the Hoople a little bit, which is what the demos sound like. But then yeah. they were just totally County Crows up. Like I told you, I heard some other influences in there, and I don't hear them as much once you guys got in there and made the songs. Yeah, I mean, They're I was thinking original. about Thin Lizzy and Mott the Hoople kind of. Um, not to be sounding just like that, but I, that's kind of like part of where I was going with it. Uh, it's more, it's a kind of melodicism that I really like. Um, and I really wanted them to be that way, guitar heavy, but with real, real melodies. Um, I don't know how else to describe them. Well, it's for one but thing. There are four, well, I'll tell you the titles. Sorry. Yes, please. The four titles are uh, The Tall Grass. Elevator Boots, Bobby and no Elevator Boots, 14th The Street. Angel Fourteenth Street, yeah. and Bobby and the Rat Kings. Those are the four titles. Uh, I don't think I'll give you much more information than that. I'll say this: uh, when when I was when Adam was singing, I guess uh, Angel Fourteenth Street. I think you were singing that one um, when I was there uh, about a half hour before Sean Barner, our friend Sean texted me. is like, oh, you're going to be there for a while? Because I had posted on Instagram a picture of us in the studio. And um, he came by and the two of us were geeking out on you singing. You know, you and I will geek out on something on the podcast. He just leans over to me and goes, I know we're supposed to be all cool about this and we're friends now, but this is so fucking cool. And then he was like, these <laughs> lyrics are stupid great. And then we just started talking about it as if you weren't even there when you were over there singing. I in wasn't the booth. there. I was in the booth. Yeah, but it was, we were like, it was as if we were listening to a County Crow song and kind of sharing our thoughts about what the songs are. Um, but I think they're all in their own way, separately but together, epic. The last song specifically um, really has a, an epic quality to it. Kind of reminds me of like the second side of Springsteen's Each Street Shuffle style. And, uh, but they all have a g- wonderful lyrics, and, and, and the imagery is, is great. You're at the top of your game. It's really wonderful listening. I, I know he's not going to say that, but I, just from being there as an outside party and, and listening to them being played back, Especially when you were joking, when you were listening over and over again to listen to the best vocal takes, you're like, this has got to be boring for you. And I, Imber gets a kick out of it. And I was getting as much a kick out of it because I got to really listen to the lyrics and how you form them and how they work in the, in the grand scheme of the whole song, which is, was usually informative for me as a writer and working with you. Oh, you were process. there when we were, we were doing Bobby and the Rat Kings. Comedy. That part, that yes. part, yeah. yeah. You know, well, I, I think I, I love that. That song has got me maybe the most excited in some ways because... I mean, Tall Grass is so beautiful, really? uh, and it moves me. But Bobby and the Rackings, I think I always really wanted to write a song where I could picture people standing out in the audience air-guitaring it. <laughs> and I really, yeah. really wrote Bobby and the Rackings to have big guitar chords. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. I, mean, I really wanted it to be a big, like, Pete Townsend guitar anthem kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I could... When, it, when, it, when we finished the first set of recordings, and we still have to add a couple guitars, uh, I... I was really just like standing in the back of the room doing the air guitar thing. I was so happy about that. Good. Yeah. And Jim's killing it too. He's got that great, uh, you know, Phil Spector. Yeah. You know, I love that stuff. So it really is dynamic and it's fantastic. It'll be, it'll be probably, uh, would you guess, a lot of fun to play live? Oh, I think it'll be really fun to play. I, I love playing this. Are you going to play them in a row live? Well, how would you even know this? I know you always say, don't, I don't know what I would do in the future, but do you see yourself playing those in separate Well, yeah, I mean, they're set? really written to go that way. We sequence albums to work a certain way, but these are written to work that way. I could see them being played all together. Sorry, I almost kicked over your mic. No, not at all. Um, yeah, I could see that. I, I mean, the future is the future, but sure. I, I could definitely see that. Um, got any more questions? Yeah, we've got a couple. Um, Nick 
follow-up question from someone else, but related is, what's your hygiene regimen? All right, so people are asking because of the coronavirus. I just want to repeat it. How we're feeling, yeah, of course. How we're feeling and what our regimen is hygiene-wise. You want to take one of these? Uh, Well, I feel fine. Uh, I was a little wiped out last week because, you know, 12-hour days are tiring. As You know, that's on... That's just normal, though. Uh, recording is always like that for me. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I feel fine. I've been been trying to be really careful. You wash your hands after everything. At the studio, I was taking the Clorox wipes and wiping the whole place down or the stuff surfaces we used a lot. Um, I think we were all working on that. Uh, I mean, there were, what, what was it? For the last, you know, there's, what, six or seven of us together the whole time. Uh, but, and then mostly just like four or five of us, but we've been trying to stay away from even our friends. This is the first time we've had anyone over in a while. Uh, you being here. Um, I mean, yeah, you walk in the door, we didn't shake hands. We didn't hug. We didn't do any of that. It's, uh, it's weird. You know, I hope everyone's being careful. I read a, a bunch of articles this week about how people in red States don't think it's a serious thing. And I mean, this isn't really about political beliefs or anything but i just hope everyone's being careful because this is a really serious problem and don't let your political beliefs get in the way of taking care of yourself and your family um i hope people really i don't know whether that's just rumors or not that people don't think i know a friend of ours the other night was just saying that she talked to a relative and he didn't think it was that serious a thing and uh, i hope everyone takes it seriously and takes care of themselves that's all nothing but the forget the politics of it just Take yeah, care of yourselves. I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there, there are places in, in the country where people are like, well, you know, and then there's other ones where they overdo it. But, you know, I, I, we went, I went to the supermarket the other day, and the lack of toilet paper is a real story. There's no toilet paper anywhere uh, or wipes or uh, hand sanitizer. So everybody should calm down in that sense, but take it very seriously. And as far as like, well, I feel fine, too. Uh, from my observation driving in, uh, I do this trip all the time. We do podcasts. I come in for concerts and other things. Uh, you know, I got here in about less than an hour, which is a record. Like usually uh, my record getting down here on light days, like on a Sunday, might be 55 minutes, 52 minutes door to door. But it was around there today. So that was kind of odd. And I even considered parking in the street so I wouldn't, you know, park in a garage because then a guy gets in the car. And now the guy, what if the guy, these are the things I don't normally think about. But my wife's always been very meticulous when we go on trips you know, bring in wipes, bring in uh, hand sanitizers everywhere we go, each stop in the ho- in, in the, uh, the the airport, in the plane. So we're we don't like to get sick ever. So this is just uh, you know par for the course for us. But it's a much more serious thing because eighty percent of people who have this are not going to show symptoms. They're asymptomatic. Symptomatic. Thank you. And that's scary because they could have it and then they give it to grandma or somebody older or somebody who does not in the best shape, um, and it becomes fatal so you got to be really careful as you said but yeah it's a worry for me about my parents you know they're 80 and i hope they're uh taking care of themselves and staying home we talked the other day hopefully they're uh hopefully everybody does right that's a hard thing you want to be able to take care of the elderly but you really probably shouldn't be going anywhere near them right now correct because of uh, i know it's a struggle for you you know uh your mom's on her own right now she is she lost my dad and and so this was tough for her and she was able to to go out and do yoga and do kickboxing and walk with her friends and get coffee but now she can't even do that so yeah it's it's tough but it's it's best it will pass they don't know maybe weeks months but uh you just got to ride it out do the best you can i'm just worried about people's jobs gigs and especially in the business that we cover 
Yeah. You know, the musicians out there, they really, you know, they're getting gigs canceled and so please support musicians, check out their music, get their CDs. Um so, yeah. I do think it's it's nice. Uh, I know that Rob Thomas texted me the other day. <clears throat> he's uh doing these social distancing sessions where he uh yeah. he's been he was playing uh, what is it? Touch catch the deluge in a paper cup. There's freedom with uh don't dream it's over. He was playing the crowded house song on his uh, Instagram, and he was calling on everybody else to do that too. And, you yeah, know, I think that's good. Provide some entertainment for people because people are sitting around, I suppose. Um, any more questions? Yeah, we've got a bunch. Um, a lot of tour questions, uh, and maybe you could talk, give an update. I know you're planning on going in the fall. Be well, it's all in the air, up in the air right now. There's no update. I mean, questions about a Connie Cross tour. Questions about tours is, is yeah. we just don't know anything right now. I know a lot of people have canceled theirs. We hadn't even put ours on sale yet. We're thinking about touring later in the year. Uh, I don't. I don't. I have no idea what's going to go on with that because uh, that's all in the future. Do you know when the the no the songs when the records are going to come out? Yeah. No, I don't oh, have okay. Any idea. I mean, I don't know when they're going to get done because we will be finishing them this week. But uh, we're going to have to postpone that. So you know, we'll see when we can get together to finish them. Um, when will Dave and Dan be in the studio? Yeah, that's that question. We were going to be. Rehearsing guitars here starting Monday and then recording starting Wednesday or Thursday, I think, of next week. But uh, that's all been postponed right now because I don't want to ask them to travel. Dave lives outside Seattle. That's not a great place to move around in right now. Mm-hmm. Brian and Neil, our producer and engineer, would have to come through O'Hare. I, I don't want people doing that. And into JFK. It's all uh, airports are a little apocalyptic right now. I don't think travel's the best idea. Uh, so yeah, we're just trying to put it on hold until we know what to do. Try and do the right thing. Yeah, we're supposed to go to Punta Cana, the family, on the 15th of April. I, that's fast becoming uh, a distant memory now, <laughs> the thought of it. I just hope the airlines do the right thing and you know, allow you to move flights around even if you don't have I, – I don't normally ever get the insurance for a flight. So um, we'll see. question was uh, the question is what I'd be up for discussing the story behind possibility days it's just kind of a song about you know I, I had had a relationship and uh, it didn't work out but I think you know just by the nature of it existing it sort of showed that uh, things are possible you know and that there's always that uh, when you're you know dealing with dissociation and anxiety you can you can find yourself feeling doomed a lot of the time, with, especially with all kinds of mental illness. You can find yourself feeling doomed a lot of the time. And I do think it's really important to realize that there's a difference between being doomed and Actually. knowing that you're someone who is prone to feeling that way right. at times, uh, in times of stress. And that was a song about something very sad that happened that isn't, you know, but by the nature of the relationship's existence at all, it sort of is proof that things are possible. And that means the next thing's possible too. Um, So it's a strangely optimistic, sad song. Yeah, I guess that's the way I'd sum it up. Yeah. Um, Got a couple of questions about model society. Wait, I will say this about that song, which is uh, really, uh, what's the word? I would say this is uh, very characteristic of me that I wrote that song about the doomed relationship and the, 
hopeful nature of it having existed in the first place when it was just starting now that I think about it. <laughs> so um, that, that's really actually pessimistic in a way. Right. But, uh, but you have done but that still before. still lovely. Still lovely. Really it's beautiful. Very, it is. A, really lovely. It's a great sentiment. Uh, better to have loved and, yeah, and lost. Better to have loved and, and lost than to have never loved at all. Yeah. If that gives you any idea of the state of my mind, uh, that there's, <laughs> the so many layers, <laughs> there's so many layers of pessimism and optimism going on in that. Yes. That is the most uh, meta-emotional thing ever yeah. right there. It's, Anyways, a culmin- it's a culmination of the style that you, we've talked about it before. I mean, Sullivan Street. And uh, Miami are two songs written about somebody considering the end of a relationship that's actually going on. This is one, yeah, the very beginning of it. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it really is the culmination of, of years of ruining things and writing great songs about it. Yeah, yeah. and speaking of great songs, that's a, there's a, there's a, that's a wonderful melody. It's it's probably my second favorite song on that record. Yeah, I mean, it was originally composed for the uh, for the play that I was working on uh, for Black, Black Sun. Sun. Yeah. And it was a part of Black Sun. Maybe it still is a part of Black Sun. It was a very significant song in that play. I wonder if people will have questions about the musical. Let's hope not. <laughs> the answer ahead of time is, I don't know. Yeah. We should, yeah. We should just qualify that, that Adam years ago was working on a, on a musical Black Sun, which I think also there's another song on that record on Somewhere Under Wonderland that's from that. Well, Palisades Park, Palisades Park right? musically was originally composed for that. Right. Um, but I never finished writing it. Um, ETA on the book. Ah. Uh, well, we've just finished all the sort of interviewing stuff for it a little while ago, so we're going to um, we have to read it and edit it. And uh, yep. I'm crossing my fingers. I'm holding my breath. I want my partner to uh, to like what I've done so far. I'm very happy with that. I think it's a, a wonderful, as I said before, I think on these things, it's a, it's a wonderful um, portrait of an artist, and it has a lot to do with his very openness and honesty and ability to show me things about the process of how he's worked, about his mental illness, about his family, about his, his, his life outside of music and within music, how, how the press and how being famous has affected his work and the band. Um, and I really enjoyed talking about the later albums when he put his heart and soul into them as much as the ones that were, say, more popular and how much that meant to him. Now I'm speaking for you, but I will say that since I've read it, since I wrote it, uh, or you know, compiled the interviews from that, uh, I'm very much looking forward to Adam reading it, and then that would be the next step. So, yeah, and, and the cool thing about it is them going in the studio is a great way to end the record because there hadn't been any new music since 2014 was somewhere, right? Oh, I don't know. Somewhere. And, and that, although that is in there, it's kind of cool because it's, back, it's him back in his element, and uh, I dedicate an entire chapter to our discussions on his writing process, and to see him do it from scratch into what's going on now uh, has informed me again and is, is able to... You, it's, it's a way to, in, into the process of songwriting, performing, so many different things. So, again, I'm crossing my fingers you'll like it as much as I do. So. In other words, no E on the TA. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we got some work to do, yeah. but it's happening, so that's very nice. Um, so a question or two came in about Model Society. I own the Model Society record, and I know your sister took the picture, but who is the picture of on the front sleeve? It's me. On the front of the cover of the Model Society 45. That's what we're talking yeah, about here. Me. Which, that's it's me. I was at Tintern Abbey, which was uh, one of my favorite uh, poems by William Wordsworth. And I was insisted that on that trip to England with the family that we go there. And, uh, I, and we took a picture. And then later on, I was like, hey, this would be perfect for this record. Yeah, it's at Tintern Abbey on the banks of the Wye. I remember you saying to me when I asked you about that, because I didn't know that was you. That was the first thing you gave me when I met you. You signed it for me, and you're because we were, you know, starting this, 
And um, you said, I don't know why. I just think that's I, – I look like a rock star there. I look cool there. <laughs> so I picked it out. You know, I thought it was a great observation of him because he was young and it was his first thing. And it was kind of – My neat. first experience of being cool, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. No, but it was. It was like <laughs> I was a kid. I wasn't – I didn't have a million pictures taken by photographers on album covers. Sure, it was good just, point. That's the first picture of me that ever went on a piece – the first piece of music I ever recorded, really – in a studio, so it, it is a very cool picture, and yeah. what, that's Baltimore. And what's on the front? What's on the A side of that? But to Baltimore, uh, Janie and back to Baltimore. Yeah, Janie, I'm yeah. um, back to Baltimore. Yes. Um, someone has asked if you would give a writing prompt for the poet stuck at home. Any ideas for writers who want something new to write about? Oh, uh, they were asking about a writing prompt. Poets who want to write about something and get it up there. Well, I do want to plug. You're thinking? Do you have an answer for this? Well, I suppose the coronavirus. If you needed to rhyme, the coronavirus and Miley Cyrus. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I was going to say something differently. It should probably be the coronavirus and Billy Ray Cyrus because it's a little more syllable, <laughs> syllabic <laughs> quality there, there. Yes, yes. I could do it as a limerick. Um, so I, I'm writing for a, for a webzine now called Dog Door Cultural, and they take poems and short stories and essays about everything. So if you're writing... Please hit them up. There's a, there's a way you can submit on the website. It's uh, dogdoorcultural.com. I think they do a fantastic job. They're young people, uh, and they're really energetic, and um, they take great care. They do artwork for each piece. Uh, I just completed my fourth one about the police um, that came out two weeks ago. So, But they're, they're taking, like, you know, fiction, short stories, and a lot of poetry. So if, you, if you're motivated and you want to get readers, you know, maybe check them out, too. I didn't really have a subject. I left that to him. Maybe Miley Cyrus and coronavirus, but that's where you can go if you want people to read your stuff. There once was a boy named B. Cyrus who <laughs> caught the coronavirus. He ate lots of soup and occasionally pooped and had chats with his daughter, Miley Cyrus. There. There's a limerick for you. It's fantastic. That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. My daughter is learning limericks now, so yeah. I think it's 85585 five, something. It's some kind of it has to be a certain amount of Right. Very good. You got to get that diddly D in there. It's a very Irish thing. Diddly, diddly, diddly D. It's so true. Oh well, all the tracks that I've ever written are fiction. I mean, they have. No, they're almost all fiction. They just have parts of how I feel in them, but they're not. They're not meant to be diary entries, and none of them really are. I mean. Uh, I, I, know, I would think of all, all of them as fiction. They just have me as the main character sometimes and other people as the main character other times. Um, I guess they're the same as any others in that sense. Yeah, I did the most solipsistic thing you could possibly do, and I put myself in my, my only work of fiction just to screw with that concept. But you're right. I mean, anything any novelist is going to put their real lives into something. I mean, some, some more than others. And Hemingway did... Uh, Sun Also Rises, he actually, he barely changed people's names and they got pissed. I mean, he basically rewrote his life in Spain and, and in Paris, and it was, you know, people got really mad at him. And then Kerouac changed everything and on the road. That's from a prose standpoint, but as far as songwriters concerned, uh, if I may, Adam comes from a great, great line of uh, personal songwriters who put their lives in their work, but they also fictionalize them, as he said, to give them a greater scope. Uh, right off the top of my head, Joni Mitchell is one of the greats for that. And uh, but so many others. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think any of it's uh, intended as diary entries. That's what makes 
you a good songwriter is that <clears throat> I mean, if it was just about writing about our lives, you'd be dependent on actually doing something interesting, uh, you know. But we, you know, it's just about how you feel about things. Um, the difference, I think, on more recent records like uh, "Somewhere Under Wonderland" for us is that I I used characters that weren't me, as opposed to just the I form a lot of the time. Um, but I'm always talking about things I'm feeling one way or another. And if I would say the, the, the four songs that I heard from a lyrical standpoint, they're very much storyteller songs. It's kind of like Chaucer in a sense. You're, you're going and speaking about characters and what they're doing in, the, in these songs. Yeah, I suppose they really all are. Yeah. Um, Randall is, is on, the, on the line. Slip it! <laughs> and he asked, what is your favorite thing about seeing me last week? My favorite thing about seeing him last <laughs> week? Your favorite thing about seeing Randall, we should say, for the yeah. podcast yeah. audience. Oh, yes. <laughs> what a Should dick. you say who Randall is? Randall's my friend, Randall Slavin. He wrote that book, We All Want Something Beautiful. Yes. Not wrote, he, wrote, he took the photographs for We All Want yes. Something Beautiful. That's right. Which, he came uh, by? Well, he, he had to come in and do a shoot last week. And, um, plug, plug, plug. I think our, he's just doing this because we plug it every yeah, episode. Yeah, I know. Really, it really is. <laughs> this is We All Want Something Beautiful, which is an incredible book of photographs. Of photographs by my friend Randall Slavin, who is a brilliant photographer. Yeah, he is. It's um, a beautiful book, Randall. Congratulations. It really is an amazing book. Um, he was in here to do a shoot last week. Well, uh, one of our friends passed away last week, and so there was a lot of work to be done around her her death, our friend Maura Mance. And, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, so our friend Eddie Mills was here staying with us for about a week and a half um, while he prepared for the funeral. Um and Randall came in to do a, a shoot uh, and to be there too. They were organizing a, uh, a a memorial sort of tribute to her here in New York, um, and that got canceled because you know everything got canceled. Um, but uh, it was it was it was really nice because we got to spend a week kind of living or almost two weeks living with Eddie Mills, which was one of my you know I. I don't miss living in LA, but I really miss my friends from LA. I had the best friends there. And during the time I lived there it was such an important time in my life. And I made a lot of the best friends I'll ever have in my life there. And so I, I miss all of them all the time. Uh, and so getting to spend like two weeks with Eddie living here was incredible. And then Randall came by, uh, for a couple of days at the end. Um, my favorite part as it always is when I see Randall is just seeing Randall, which is, uh, if you've ever met Randall, a total fucking pleasure. Um, although last time he was here before that, we, we spent a whole bunch of time on that app that makes you young and old. And I can't remember what it's called, but we made these incredible, like old man pictures of ourselves. And Randall truly looked decrepit, like, uh, like a truly, truly sickly Bukowski clone. Um, it was incredible. Uh, I looked like, uh, an old version of really old version of my father. I really did. Uh, Joey looked looked Joey my friend Joey that was here looked very much like uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, which was really strange when his old man picture it was really really <laughs> that was a little disturbing. A he did it, well in the picture they do that they they give you a long beard it's one of the things they do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I should mention that we ju- I just got a text from Barbara Garrett I talked to her on the way in one of the producers of the Underwater Sunshine Fest. And, of course, I feel so bad for Barbara. She was going to do a lot of work with South by Southwest, and that's done yeah. now. Uh, but Barbara had mentioned to me, and he, he, I think she, he floated to you, that there were some ideas um, about maybe doing some live sessions through the Underwater Sunshine uh, 
website or at least the Facebook page coming up with different musicians. So she said, feel free to mention it, at least throw it out there because uh, we're trying to think of ways to help out the people who play the festival. But also I know a lot of musicians are home. They're, bored freaking out maybe having to cancel gigs so that might be a cool thing we can do and provide for yeah people. we have to just sort of figure out the logistics of how, how to, to actually do it. do it it came up a couple of days i must admit i didn't really look at many texts for the last few weeks because we're in the studio but uh it came up as an idea we'd have to look into the logistics of how to actually do that how to do people just do it from their phones i guess that's one way to do it um but we, we need to figure that out it's yep. a cool idea it is very cool idea and we're really looking forward to the fall and hopefully doing the festival. Yes. We hope. And thank goodness we didn't do the April one. That's yeah. all I have to say. Yeah. I mean, it would have been tough with you recording and everything else, and it's really tough to do too. But, but um, yeah, I mean, in lieu of everything, um, November is, is right. Or October. October. It's October. So there's a question about covers. I don't know much about songs we haven't covered because I haven't. It hasn't occurred to me to play them. Um, uh, so no E on the TA of that either. Um, <laughs> uh, we did a whole album of covers, by yeah, the way. We did. Who the hell does that? Kevin <laughs> um, uh, Crows did. I, I really like playing cover songs. I just think it's fun. It seems crazy to me to limit yourself to only playing songs by one person in your whole career. That seems like a waste of time. I really enjoyed playing other people's songs and like interpreting stuff. I thought that was so cool. And getting a chance to sing different kinds of melodies that different people write that I wouldn't necessarily write. Um, I, I had the best time making and touring on that record. I still love playing those songs. You know, I still get the biggest kick out of them in concert, too. Um, that was just such a joy. Uh, I, w- I, I would love to do it again. It was a weird one because, you know, it's sort of like a... I think because a lot of cover albums really suck, too. There's a very, there's very much a... Uh, sort of prejudice against against them um but i wish people would re-examine that record i loved underwater sunshine the record which is why it keeps popping up in my life as a name i think the whole concept the record itself i i really love it i do wish we'd left off that version of uh Ooh La La. oh oh really yeah oh maybe amy too those two are the ones it's funny they're the most famous songs on the record and they're the the least good to me well I, I liked Amy successful. but you didn't I knew that I remember well I like the version on the record I don't like I didn't like when we played it live I like the version on the record kind of it, it's ooh la la that I thought we should have probably left off it was it was okay not as good as I was uh, I was very close to leaving it off and caused apoplexy among my managers who were like it's the only fucking song anyone knows you can't take it off the record <laughs> it's a good version of that it's okay it's you know right. it's it's um I, I was going over I'm doing a project now that I'm home that I've been pushing off and pushing off. So I was looking for some music for it. So I was going through my old music files. And man, did I find some great early Counting Crows boots. And you do at least a dozen uh, covers of stuff, except for those versions I've never heard you do. And I feel stupid saying it out loud now because I can't remember which one. Maybe the next podcast I'll go and write them down. I'm like, holy shit, they covered that? I mean, you were doing that quite a bit in your career. Where well, you, you start off in a band, you don't have enough songs for a show. You only have one record. Some of these are from like 2002. And, oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know cool. what we were playing then. but I like playing cover songs. You know, I really loved the when we did The Devil and the Bunny Show all those years. Yeah. Because Immer and I were just like guilt-free playing a million cover songs in the middle of the night while 
wine drunk. <laughs> I really enjoy that. that. That was one of my favorite things when we did the Warren Zevon thing when my book came out was your version of the turtle song. That oh, Warren Outside wrote. Chance. Outside Chance. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's a show. Oh, yeah, yeah. We did do a Dylan thing. Didn't we do a Dylan thing on a... We were going to... A, we were going to do a Blood and Tracks, but we ended up just talking a little bit about it. But I oh. might have played a couple of things, oh, I don't but... Know. Yeah. Maybe um, you're right, yeah. yeah I, I thought, thought we did do Blood and Tracks I thought we did some stuff. Blood and the Tracks stuff, yeah. Um, I, I... We were talking uh, about doing... Well, we, we actually did these two podcasts that we have to redo now. Um, but we were... We, well, we're going to do a future podcast on Francis Quinlan's record. Yeah. And uh, what's it called? Likewise? Likewise and uh, Beach Bunny's new album. Which I love. I can't get I, enough of that. I'm, I, I love both those records so it's, much. It's the only They're reason why so I want to incredible. re-record it because I want to talk about more of it. Honeymoon is the Beach Bunny record. Yeah. Um, it's great. Uh, and then we did uh, Durando. Durando. That you had picked, oh, by the way, great that that show was magnificent. Yeah, the, the, East Bay kind of soul legend who's been uh, largely forgotten. There's a, I, I found some of his music on uh, High Fidelity, the TV show. They were playing one of the songs, Fidelity, and that got play. me to get the the music and check it out. And also on that, we were talking about Frankie Miller. Yes, the artist Frankie Miller, uh, his record Once in a Blue Moon. Uh, and so that's we're definitely going to do those, and we'll get back to Prince soon. We have to begin. With Purple Rain, I suppose. That's where we are, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got, thank you so much. Everybody was so effusive in their praise of that. And I was very surprised. I was just talking about this the other day with someone. You know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I mean, Prince was huge. But there's a whole other generation of kids or young people or even people maybe have been through. Well, like, I didn't, 1999, that's great. And I thought, really? I don't know, 1999, that's odd. But it makes perfect sense because we went through it, but a lot of people don't. That's 30 some odd years ago. And so even doing something like Prince really touched a chord with people. And I'm very pleased. I would have done it anyway just to me and you sitting here without even taping it. That was so much fun. That's one of the best box sets I've ever gotten. Yeah. It's an incredible yeah. production they put together for it that is. record. And I also love the idea of uh, putting out a box set on the 20th anniversary of the name of a record <laughs> yeah. as opposed to the 20th anniversary of the record because the record came out 37 years before that. Right. Um, but... The 20th anniversary of the name was last year. And that's such a weird thing because I was like, 1999, of course they're putting it out. 20 years. Wait. Came out in 1982. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's true. And, and I would say one of the things Adam and I talked about briefly, but I have a few albums in mind that I think absolutely that he and I have always touched upon that we both love and that we keep going back to when we're referencing other things. So it would be nice to do this kind of thing we did, we've been doing with Prince, but do it for one artist one week. You know, take a record. And just play the record and talk about it, or yeah. most of the record. And uh, there are so many in, in, in our lives that we – it's endless. That, that's what – it's amazing. We're coming up on 100 episodes, and I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface. And some of the best ones that we've done, like the, the series ones, like Punk, Rod Stewart, um, and The Faces, Prince. The uh, Scottish stuff. The Scottish stuff. Um, the – Yeah. It, th- those were great too but I like the ones when we just play new music or just get into a rabbit hole and decide oh we're going to play this like when we did the Frankie Miller thing the reason why you brought him up is because of your song and you and I were doing the finishing pickup interviews for the book and I said Frankie Miller goes to Hollywood now I know Frankie goes to Hollywood that's a cool play on it who's Frankie Miller and you're like what <laughs> you did that to me like I've done it with Prince and we, we got to play it on the podcast so that's how we got to Frankie Miller so yeah, yeah. it's kind of cool 
here. She says thank you for stopping by. Francis Quinlan? Mm-hmm. No way. <laughs> Francis. Francis is the, the lead singer songwriter for a band called Hop Along, which we've featured on the yes, show and is did. one of my yes. favorite bands. Their album last year, Bark Your Head Off Dog, is one of the best albums anyone's made in years. It's so fucking good. And then she topped it with a solo album, which is incredible this year as well. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, we actually had done that podcast. We did a podcast and it was... It- and- he got home and the entire podcast was gone. gone. First time in 90 All the files had yes, disappeared. Gone. So we don't know what happened, but we have to redo that podcast. Otherwise, that would already be out. We did it the week, right, the right week after you, her record came out. Right. And right before uh, Adam went into the studio because we knew we'd have a bunch. And that's why you've been listening, which is great. We, we have a chance to play the uh, garden session and the interviews. Some of those are – when I listened back to them, I was stunned. Some of those are really, really fun. Um, but, yeah, we would have had the full – so – that would have been one of the last two episodes before so I went to the studio, so we'll have to get to that now soon, because yep. I haven't been able to do anything for a few weeks. Um, By the way, Francis, our, uh, our engineer on this new record is Neil Strouch, who, who knows you. And that was the other thing we realized, was that uh, Joe Reinhardt produced both those records. Yes. Totally coincidentally. It was a complete accident. We were just featuring the Beach Bunny record and the Francis Quinlan record, and late in the process, I was like, hey, hold on. The same guy produced both these records. Yeah. Yep. Adam, uh, a note. You touching the bottom of your shoe and then touching your face. Oh, it's so hard on my head. It's like impossible. It's I like hard. how people are I'm sli- my, my shoes are slipping on the ground, so I'm having trouble like keeping my leg in place and trying to sit far over so this mic picks me up. And stay close. You know, and so I've been holding my shoe. Oh, it's just so annoying. Well, it's really hard. As a, as a veteran of the shaved headset, I will say that when he first came with it, and he still kind of has it, you cannot do that. You have to play with your head. Did you find that? Well, I just shaved it the other day, too. So, so you like, buzzed it again? Yeah, yeah. I, I shaved it a couple days ago, and I was like, it's I just really want to shave my head after getting done with recording. I shaved it pretty close, and yeah, now I can't stop touching my head. It's yeah. like impossible. It's a weird thing, but you do. You have to do yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I did. Uh, Good luck has been re- was I after it, I didn't put it on recovering satellites. I, I took Good Luck out and saved it for uh, Good Luck and Chelsea both for the musical. So I've been holding those for a long time. The Greening of America. I don't know. I've forgotten about that song, and I found a copy of it last year. It's a song I wrote about a bug, love, the love life of a, an insect. Yeah, I think um, you played that for me. So you do have a recording of it. Yeah, somewhere I found it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. I, I, I did love the melody of that song. God damn it. I touched my face. I didn't touch my face. <laughs> yeah. um, are you a pessimist or an optimist? We have a question about pessimism and optimism. Do you consider yourself a glass F half empty fellow or half full? I'd like to believe I'm an optimist, which is being optimistic. <laughs> but let's face it. Mm. So, no. Yeah, really. uh, I'm a, definitely a pessimist. I, my f- wait, I left my drink. Talk to James for a minute, everybody. I, I have a... Wait a minute, you can't... Oh, look. I gotta get a drink. Oh, okay. So, oh, look at this hand sanitizer. I'm leading from my car when the guy who parked my car <laughs> is holding my steering wheel. Um, what the hell were we just saying? Oh, yes. So my theory in life is expect the worst, hope for the best. That's really how I've gone through life, and it's worked out for me. But um, a lot of people say that I write cynically, but I don't think I am a cynic. I think I'm more of a realist. 
especially when it comes to societal issues or political issues or human nature. Um, I would think that if you look at Adam's work, I would think he's more optimistic. And he's, I think you said to me once, um, which I believe is in the book, that there's well, that creating everything you create, like all the alt lyrics you do when you create a, a melody in the middle of another melody, it's an optimistic act. It's a, it's a hopeful act is what you call it. So I kind of think that's true. Thank you, Zoe. I actually thought of this hand sanitizer thing about a month ago and ordered it, but it took forever to get here. It didn't get here until a couple days ago, a day ago. Oh, it was so long ago. All right, what else we got? Um, so we got people asking for different recommendations in general, asking what is keeping you inspired during these tough times. So what are some movies, books, things you've listened to? Ah, that's a good one. Recommendations for... Uh, Distractions, I guess. Well, we watched The Magician the other day, the Bergman movie, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, and then we watched... Uh, I watched The 36th Chamber of Shaolin a couple days ago. Hey! Classic late 70s kung fu movie. One of the early, you know, first kung fu movies to come over from Asia, really, and be popular. Shaw Brothers production. It's a fantastic movie. I love that movie so much. I think I saw it years and years ago, but so 36th chamber of Shaolin was magnificent. I felt like what else have we watched in last week or so? Uh, we've been watching a lot of parks and rec cause that, that makes me happy. That show is so good. Yeah, it really is. Brilliant. Ron Swanson is one of the greatest characters in the history of television. He's magnificent. He is. If you ever have a chance, go on YouTube and just watch the best of Ron Swanson. It's, 20 minutes of sheer hilarity. Um, I'm trying to think what else we've watched recently. Charlie's Angels. That, I didn't like Charlie's Angels. That was... Uh... Have you guys seen Hunters yet? With no, Pacino? Well, I want to get to that. Is that good? Have it is it? good. It's, it's sort of like an Avengers superhero, Tarantino. You know, it's, it's very odd because it, it takes... It, it's a very serious subject. But the fact that it takes place in 77 and all these Nazis... It's about Nazi hunters. Uh, are, you know... Alive and living in the, and and it goes back to discuss all the the concepts of Nazis being um, taken out of Germany right at the end of the war to keep them away from the Soviets and then bringing into our space program the moral aspects of that and they do a really great job of historical fiction too they have certain things that happen in seventy seven like the blackout but it, it works in tandem with the storyline so you know when you read historical fiction they say well this thing happened like the Kennedy assassination happened because of whatever the storyline is going on for somebody like I think Stephen King actually just wrote a book about that um, so it's really great I, I, we enjoyed it and Pacino is magnificent in it He's, I can watch him read the dictionary I'm good with that so really good and I loved High Fidelity everybody please watch High Fidelity it's a great show and the I thought it was really good we only saw two or three episodes the first two or three I thought it was really good Watch them all the way to the end because it doesn't end rote. It's, it's the way they wrap up the first season and they set up for a second season is uh, – it was great for me because I, I hate when they just – you see it coming. Here it comes. They're going to end this way, and it doesn't. It's so cool. Yeah. Um, what was it like being in Sordid Humor? Oh, it was really fun. It was nice to be in a band where I wasn't responsible for – I mean, I just kind of sang – it was my favorite band, and I just sort of sang backgrounds. So I'm not stressed about anything with that band. Oh, uh, I just sang in it. Someone just asked about Sordid Humor. You should w- listen to the Immer Gluck um, podcasts, probably back in the teens. Immergasm or something it's called. Immergasm, and there's two part one, and they go through all of Sordid Humor. We play yeah. a ton of that, yeah. and you, they talk about their times and him singing with with them. And we're gonna try to get Immer on 
to uh, to talk about the new record and a bunch of stuff. So yeah. We got to have Immer back. But those are great. If you really want to know about Sorted Humor, they spent like an entire episode on it. Hey, Tolan. Preferred music medium. CDs, vinyl, lossless audio. Uh, they were asking about our favorite medium to play music. Um, well, CDs made me so happy when they came along because there was no flipping. I really loved that idea, and you could take them in your car easily. Um, so I, I still have a loyalty to that, but honestly, I think I mostly load stuff into my computer and play it from there. Um, the really great thing to me, the invention, was the iTunes, not the store. But the uh, the library, the file, the, the the application, because I used to carry a suitcase on tour for buying because I buy CDs and I had needed to carry music with me in a boombox. And then when iTunes was invented, I could just load thousands and thousands of records up in my computer and carry them with me. I, I never lacked music again. I mean, now you have Spotify, so it's it's easy to find whatever you want. But it was so great to be able to carry music around easily. Um, that much music, just everything. Yeah, um, it, it's still in every uh, thing I own, whether it's an iPad or an iPhone or my computer. Most of the files are music. Most of the storage is taken up by music. Well, aside from creating for me, and of course my family, but my favorite things in the world have always been since I was a kid is reading and music. Albums was my first love, and, and push comes to shove, I'll listen to something on a record. I, I've always maintained that it's warmer, the bass frequencies, there's certain things about vinyl, I'm not going to get into that. But obviously, as Adam said, you can't really travel with that. So when cassettes were available, and I could tape an album and put it on and play it on, on a cassette deck in my car, in a Walkman, fantastic. We're world-changing. I went along with that. CDs, wow, digital, it doesn't skip, it doesn't lose its audio, you don't have to keep changing the stylus, I can listen to it anywhere I want, I went along with that. Then then the revolution of MP3, so to me, I, I was able to, I evolved with it. The weird thing is, I never did that with books. I cannot read a book on a, on one of those little Kindles or anything. Oh, I love doing that, because I can, again, carry my thousand books. books. I know, you think I would embrace yeah. that, never did. You know, uh, <clears throat> the really hard thing about vinyl, which it, it, all the vinyl made now is so much more heavy duty than it was then. You know, when people make vinyl, it's always that 180 gram. It's always heavyweight vinyl right. now because it's so little that's made. But one of the biggest nightmares about having vinyl was it got scratched, it got ruined, and it warped. And it melted. You made the mistake of leaving it in, it in somewhere car. that was too hot or yes. just taking it home from the store the day you bought it. When it would warp, it was heartbreaking to lose records because they got broken, they warped, they scratched. Yep. It was so easy to damage them. Cassettes had the same problem, but less so. But they had such a loss in quality well, every get, time you record something. They get caught in the, in the thing. That happened all the time to me. Yeah, but they really lost quality was the big thing with yeah. cassettes. You lost the, the, highs. the generations in analog. Every generation away from something got it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, the nicest thing about digital, well, aside from the not having to flip it, which I... I still remember the joy of like, wow, I, it's just my love of being really lazy, I guess. Right, right. But the, the, the generations didn't change anything. That copies of copies of copies didn't screw up a, a CD. Right. And didn't screw up the music on a CD. That was an incredible thing to me. Like, it, it, you know, you buy a CD, it's still good now. You bought well, it the, when, the when CDs came out. Well, the ones are starting to like fade now. Oh, degenerate? Well, degenerate, really, yeah. I mean, I... I, I that's 40 years, though. That's still, That's yeah. incredible. They're, you know, it, it, that was the biggest, the hardest thing about those other forms for me was the deterioration of them over time and how easy it was to damage them. It was, hard, it was just so fucked when you loved a record and all of a sudden it didn't work anymore. Yep. Um, that I, was really heartbreaking. 
I will say this, though. I, I'm so glad I grew up when I did. And everyone says this because they grew up when they did. But I don't know how I would have made it through preteen years or teen years without having those records to open up, look at the record, reading the lyrics, especially in those Elton Johns where they used to put the full libretto with the photographs in there. And just everything that came with the record, the album covers, they were art forms into themselves. It was a full package. You were getting a visual, you were getting an audio, yeah, you read along with the lyrics, which wasn't always the case, and it was hard to read the liner notes on CDs. I really, it was a huge part of my love of music and what we celebrate on this podcast. I don't think I could have, I, I wouldn't be the same person if I didn't have that experience listening to yeah. music that way. Okay. The question was about actors. Best new actors and directors. Uh, I know I'm going to forget this, but what, what's the guy who did um, um, ro- uh, the rabbit movie that I loved? Jojo Rabbit. Uh, Jojo rabbit. Talking about what TT? Oh, so good. I hope he keeps making movies. All of his movies. I've loved every one of his movies. He's They're so good. So good. Um, I mean, especially uh, Hunt for the Wilder People and Jojo Rabbit. Those two are incredible. But I love what we do in the shadows and the Thor movie he made is, is so great. Right. Um, right. I'm bad with names, but there's so many. You know what the great directors are doing now? They're, you know, I tell you, I'm watching the latest uh, season of Better Call Saul. Every show is directed just it's gorgeous the show is beautiful it's well acted it's well scripted the stories are really cool it's great seeing those characters back again but the shows are just they haven't lost that wonderful quality that Breaking Bad had or some of these some of the best work is on TV even Hunters like I said it's just it's made like a film and it's great how was it to do songs with the Hollywood Orchestra question oh that was really cool um uh, we did that. I did that twice. Once with when Counting Crows played at the Disney Hall, and we had the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra playing with us for the most part. And then another when I did a show with George Martin uh, of Beatles music. With I'm trying to think who else was on that. Peter Case, the singer for uh, Plim Souls. Uh, me. Uh, what's his name? That was a singer for Yes. Trevor Rabin, I think. Uh, and the Bangles did it with us. I can't remember if there, who else was there. But it was a great, and it was that was my that was my first experience playing with an orchestra as opposed to a band, which is a whole different thing. It's really diff- time is what's difficult because with a band you always have a click track, whether that click track is a drummer doing this right. or a guitar player strumming. People are playing in rhythm. In an orchestra, you don't have a rhythm instrument. And doing you're a that. rhythm machine. You're all about the rhythm. Yeah. So, but <laughs> in an orchestra, you, what you have is a baton. Right. It's follow it, but the baton isn't a click. It's a little bit ahead of the beat, and you have to follow behind it. But didn't you, is, and you did She's Leaving Home, didn't you? Yeah, which was really hard because it, <laughs> the song begins on harp. The opening instrument for She's Leaving <laughs> Home <laughs> in the orchestra yeah, is, yeah. is a harp, which is very hard to follow. Um, and I really struggled at first with it. I, but I eventually got it. But I, I, I was... Is it over? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm yeah. Video now All right. Okay. So we'll be back on. So for the purposes of podcast listeners, though... Um, we'll just pause and then you, we'll go. I guess pause. we could pause. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been there in years. I mean, I have friends that went there. I spent the first year or so, year and a half of college there. Um, I don't, I mean, I have, I, I'm still close friends with my friends that I knew there. But uh, I haven't been there myself in a long time. It was a great place to start college. It was, it was great. And, you know, again, because I've been reading through, and Adam knows this because it was his life, but I've been reading through for the last year and a half all of our discussions, and UC Davis 
stories are fantastic. They're a huge part of this book. Oh. Yeah. What up, oh, Kaba? Chris Caraba. <laughs> Kaba. Nice. Well, so we also opened almost all the shows last year with it, um, or the year before. I can't remember when it was. But one of the last tours, we opened almost all the shows. Yes, with you Mrs. did in Potter's Jersey, Lullaby. Mrs. Potter's yeah. Lullaby. Yes. Yeah, well, I can't help you. We play it all the time, but the problem is we do change the lineups every show. So sometimes, just through dumb luck, you'll just miss a song that we play. That's when we play a lot. We specifically opened almost every show on the last tour with it, um, but. It does happen. We have a lot of songs, and you can't play only so many in a given concert. You can't play only so many. Ignore me. Forget it. Forget it. <laughs> I'm sorry to, about that. When we first started doing the podcast, we did, we did like three or four of them, and we didn't. And, and Adam really didn't like them. I, I I was lukewarm about them, but I wasn't really sure. He had an idea in his head, so we didn't end up using them. But I told the story in one of them, and I never got a chance to tell it again. I'm not even sure it's in the book. But when I was on the road with Counting Crows in 2017. Uh, at the end, they played Syracuse, which was great because my wife got to pick me up. My family came, and the, the guys were Tom and Holly. Everybody was really great to them. And um, Immer had planned, along with you, to play to open up the show with um, uh, what did you guys play? I can't believe it. Oh, uh, Sullivan Street, because I kept saying Sullivan Street every time you guys would sit down and you weren't doing it. And every time we sat down to to, do to figure list? out the set list. Oh, okay. And and at the end, so all Immer said to me before I left, go back, get in your seat. Don't fuck around. Get in your seat. So I do. And it was stunning. They started playing it. And I just knew. And then Emma was like pointing at me from the stage. It was a great moment for me. But anyway, before the sh- to, to, to fool me, they, put, they did not put it on the, the set list throughout the building. Like everybody had to be in on this. The light guy, the sound guys, the, the guys in the crew because they're bringing different guitars out and different tunings. So that was amazing. But I had said during the thing – just to fool me, Emma goes, what do you want to hear tonight? And I said, I want to hear Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. So they put it in the set. So they did those both, but you opened with Sullivan Street. But my daughter came to the show, and it was a little loud for her. So she wanted to go back where she was, which is the backstage area. So I ended up having to carry her back to this backstage area. And I was in there settling her down for like 10 minutes, and I hear it. And I'm like, they're fucking playing this song I want to hear. I'm missing Mrs. Potter's Ah. Lullaby. So I missed half the fucking song. But thankfully, you guys gave me the show. I have the show. Oh, okay. Uh, So I got to hear it, and it's a great version. So I I am with you. It's one of my favorite County Crow songs, and it's a great song live because everybody gets to play something in it. Everybody in the band steps forward and does something really cool in that song. That's true. Well, the Zinfandel, I think I still have a bottle left, but I may have brought both bottles. When we first became friends, which is right after I wrote Possibility Days, so I don't know when that was, but like 2000, I don't remember what year that was. was when I had met Tyler Florence a couple years before that, and we went over to Tyler's house for dinner, uh, Tyler and Tolan's house, in Mill Valley, and Tyler had just made his first wine. He'd made these great Zinfandels, and he gave me two bottles that say, like, TF1 and TF2. There's no label on them. Just the, on the top of the cork, they said TF1 and TF2. And I, that was, uh, like, 2007, maybe? It was right around uh, when we released Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings. Uh, and I kept them all this time. 
And Tyler and Tolan came to New York last year. It was last year, wasn't it? It was 2019. I want to say it was 2019. And uh, we all went to dinner, and I brought the bottles. I I can't remember if I brought both of them or just one of them. So I think they may be gone if we drank them, or maybe I have one still here. I'm not sure. But you drank them, Tyler. (laughs) So (laughs) with me. um, And I had kept them for like 13 or 14 years. And you and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but just for the purposes of, again, we're taping this as an actual podcast, and they might not be able to hear Zoe. People were asking about your winery. So you're, you have a, you guys are up and running. You have Yo, we've been running for a couple of years now, um, and the wine's getting really, really good. Um, and uh, it's Elise Winery, E-L-Y-S-E, and uh, it's at Elise Winery, I think, on Instagram. Um, and I think this, it's in March... Right now, we're supposed to be bottling Institution, our, our really high-level upper, upper label. And uh, this is the, some of the best wine I've ever tasted in my life. We tasted it uh, out of the barrels uh, five or six months ago. Um, it was our first harvest we did, um, and you have to wait two years, you know. And so that will be getting bottled. I think it's bottled in March and coming out really – or is bottled a month ago and coming out soon. I can't remember right now. I've been out of touch could be in the studio. But I'm very, very excited about that. And the new Elise Vintage stuff is fantastic. Uh, very happy with how that's all going. You could order this stuff online? You could order a bottle yeah, of wine Elise online? Yeah, com. Great. Check I think it it's EliseWinery.com. Um, um, so I saw at some point people complaining about their questions taking too long and people are requesting speed rounds. So I've collected some questions. All right. Speed round questions. <laughs> right. some, very good. From some speedy answers. Um, Go ahead. No, the recordings are, are full recordings. Uh, we, Me, Millard, Jim, Charlie, and Immer uh, just spent the last two weeks in the studio at Atomic Sound, which is a great studio in Brooklyn in Red Hook. Um, and uh, we were, we're going to be reconvening in a couple days for, uh, or in a few days for the guitar rehearsals and then to record with, to finish up with Immer, Dan, and, and Dave Bryson. Uh, but we're going to postpone that for now. But no, these are for release. It's a four-song suite, uh, and uh, I'm really excited about it. I can't believe how well it turned out. I'm I'm really really thrilled. Um, what's the plan for the release? Will you just throw it on Spotify and call it a day, or do you plan on doing any physical release? I haven't thought about it at all. I, I I'm certain we'll do physical release. Who's producing? Uh, Brian Deck with Neil Strauch, uh, uh, engineering. And um, I, I, it's some of the best stuff we've ever done, and I finally got a good guitar, air guitar song. Um, yeah, the songs are wonderful. And, and Brian is, is great with you guys. It's so funny. You could tell you have a history. Brian produced the last, well, Sunday mornings, part of Saturday nights on Sunday mornings, yeah. and then he produced uh, Somewhere. And he's also produced all that great Iron and Wine stuff. We talked about Iron and Wine yeah. when I was there, so he's fantastic. It's a great-sounding record. It's wonderful. And uh, Adam's a great voice. The songs are excellent. I didn't realize that Brian had done the Margot and Nuclear So and So. Yes, he did. Too. Yeah, yeah. We have been planning a tour in the fall. I I don't know uh, how much will change because of what's going on. Like everybody else in the world, I I don't know much about the next six seven months. But the plan was to tour in the fall. The tour would be integrated into the uh, Underwater Sunshine Festival. We were going to hit New York and play. Uh, we were going to tour. Well, the plan is to tour with Frank Turner, who's one of my favorites, and uh, 
in the midst of the tour, we were going to hit New York and play like at Hammerstein on a Tuesday, and then Underwater Sunshine would promote a show at Irving Plaza on the Thursday with Frank Turner and some other acts, uh, and then Friday and Saturday would be the festival. Um, and I'm really excited about it, um, but uh, we'll have to see. I mean, I think the whole world is up in the air right now. So we have big plans though for the. For the festival, I mean, yeah. the, the ideas that Adam has, uh, and, and all the guys, um, but and, and gals, but it's it's uh, it's a major undertaking. The thing has grown exponentially every time. Um, when we moved to um, Rockwood Music Hall in Soho, I mean, what do we have? Thirty bands. Yeah, and this time it was going to expand to both Rockwell, expand to the Hammerstein show that we would put on with Frank, and then the Irving Plaza show with Frank and some other acts, and then uh, the weekend. At, at both Rockwood and Pianos, uh, two clubs in the Lower right. East Side. Right. Uh, so we'll have to see. I mean, the fact is, uh, I think the whole world's up in the air right now. Right. Yep. Speed round. All right. Um, how long did it take to become comfortable with others singing your words back to you? How long did it take for you to be comfortable? With others singing my words back to you? I still don't know that I am. I, I, I don't hear very many Counting Crows covers. Chris did one that I thought was really good. He did he covered the acoustic version of Angels of Silences. Yes. Angels of Silences. Yes, Chris. Which was really cool uh, on Dashboard Confessional did that. Yes. Um, but I haven't heard very many people. I, I, I saw Panic at the Disco cover around here, in the uh, which was really cool. Um, I don't know a lot of people who've covered Counting Crows. I feel like Sarah Bareilles. Sarah uh, Bareilles did used a cover. Covered, used to cover Omaha, I think. And Sullivan Street, she has a beautiful version of oh, that. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Sullivan Street. Um, but not a lot. I haven't heard a lot of it. Um, We've talked about on this podcast, I believe, some of the Counting Crows covers uh, albums. There's two of them. I have them both. One has like a cobalt blue cover with a crow on it. Yeah, I remember that one has the band Between the Buried and Me playing yes. Colorblind. Yeah, there's, um, there's some good ones out there. Yeah. You don't like to hear your, your songs back? Or, no, it's back? not that. I just don't think I've heard it very often. I, uh, I, people send me a friend of theirs, people karaokeing Mr. Jones sometimes on like Instagram stories, but right, not a lot. You know, somebody uh, I guess in one of the um, American Idols, some these two guys with acoustic guitars did a, a really, really representative version of Mr. Jones uh, two years ago or something. Yeah. And I remember someone sent it to me. I was like, "Wow, that is really, really good version of that song." It wasn't just them singing it to try to win a contest. They were really they reimagined it. I have to try to find that. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, another part. It was really cool having uh, Pascal and the guys in Bluff. Playing yes. Holiday in Spain with us in Dutch. I thought that was amazing. And you're singing on that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, hearing Pascal sing my melodies and my words in Dutch that yes. Peter, Peter had translated, that was incredible. And if I may, I don't remember what it was, but we played that. Uh, Adam and I, that, yeah. that was, we forgot. I forgot. That's one of my favorite podcast series when we did the behind, famous background voices, vocals. background vo- doing background yeah. vocals, some of yeah. them not even you know, uh, credited like Mick Jagger singing on uh, You're So Vain, uh, Carly Simon's song. But you had played throughout the cr- those three episodes, you had played stuff that you sang on the background back of, and that was in one of them. We played that version. That and, and then in, on September, which is the uh, the bluff song that I translated. Right. Uh, anyways, yep. go on. Um, what's the video game behind you? Time Crisis. Brooklyn Bowl. Oh, the one is that in Prospect Park or is that? Oh, Brooklyn Bowl, like the bowling place. I don't know. Um, if you could have a guest artist to co-write with, who would it be? That's a good question. I don't know. I, I don't really co-write much with people. Um, I've never really done much of it because I'm not very confident in my writing. I mean, I am confident in my writing, but I'm so rudimentary as a player that 
it, it, I have to work at my own pace. It's so hard for me right. at writing with other people. I, I did do a lot of uh, – I helped Sinjin Tate right. uh, out a lot uh, re- finishing the lyrics for that Remy Zero record, Villa Elaine. He and I worked a lot on that together. Um, but that's the most I've done that way. Um, that was a long time ago. I don't know. I, I, I don't really – fantasize much about co-writing with people because it, it, writing's so hard for me that I, I, I guess I'm a little embarrassed about doing it with other people because I struggle I mean, I, I mean look it works out fine but my musical abilities are so rudimentary that like it, my way of writing is I don't know it's, it's, uh, it's so hard to do it that I, I worry about playing with people who have more facility than me and, and that was the case. And there were many of you know. I, I wrote a book about Warren Zevon and his processes in there. And Warren was the same way, and he was a brilliant piano player. So I think it just comes. Do you want to be in there doing something really personal and 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 take your time and and paint over it? And he always said that he did that with his songs. So to be in there with someone else didn't really appeal to him ever. When he did do it, like when he wrote a song with J.D. Souther or when they wrote Where Was the London, of course they were all drugged up and drunk when they did it in 10 minutes with Waddy and Well, him himself. and Bruce wrote Genie's a Shooter But together. it was separate. Yeah. They were separate. Oh, they were? Yeah, I yeah. That, yeah. yeah. He, did, he just took the Genie part because uh, he liked the title and Bruce said, go ahead. And then when he wrote it, he came back to show Bruce and I was <laughs> Springsteen said, where's the rest of it? <laughs> a great line because Warren's like, what? It's done. He's like, no, it's not. So then he gave him more lyrics and then Warren finished it. But they weren't in the same room. Doing That's it. the same way I did with, with Nancy Griffith. She gave me uh, going Nancy. back to Georgia and I asked her if I could rewrite well I asked her when I got there to record the session is it okay that I rewrote all the guys parts um, I didn't rewrite the chorus parts but I rewrote right. the, the verse lyrics and she liked them so I said uh, we, were, we were talking about that the other day because you brought up um, I should play one of the new songs for people but then I realized I don't remember how to play any of them <laughs> I, I mean, I write this stuff, and I can't wait to get it off my piano parts. So as soon as possible, I get other people playing the songs. I don't like to base them on the – the way I write them is usually not how I want them to sound. Uh, and so I – the problem is then I forget how to play everything, and I have no idea how to play the songs for the most part. But maybe I'll – I'd have to practice something, and I haven't had time to do that because I just got out of the studio a couple of days ago. Um but yeah, if I were to practice, I could probably learn how to play a few songs, and then maybe I don't know. But uh, you know, that I really don't know how to play. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much of a better chance with the new songs. Uh, I kind of know how to play "Long December." I know how to play. Uh, I'm gonna say "Good Night LA," Good but the I truth know. is, I probably have forgotten how to play that since the last tour. Um, I have to relearn it. I don't know. This isn't a performance space as much as it's a chance for me to dispense. Shall we call it wisdom? Let's call it wisdom. Yes. But it's was, not for me to say whether everything I say is wise. Other people will offer their opinions. But uh, yes, let's, this is a place for James and I to dispense huge dollops of wisdom. And, and, right. and there's one right there. Now, I will say this. If anybody has any interest in me writing, uh, you could put a camera there and I can write on my laptop. That would be fantastic. For like a half hour, if yeah. anybody <laughs> Or, you know, if, we, if you do play a song... I think I want to be typing in the background. No, no, <laughs> I want to be leaning on the on the piano like they used to do. Yeah, like Steve Allen used to do. <laughs> 
or like Bing Crosby, but you know what I'm talking about? Oh, that's too good. It's just the same old story. <laughs> a fight for love and glory. <laughs> a case of do or die. Oh, yes, it could be like that, yeah. So go on. Speed round. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're not good with the speed round. We extemporize. Who played with you in Central Park a few years back? Who played, played with us with in Central Park? With Counting Crows? Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. Like, uh, on, was it the, on the traveling circus tour? Um, if it was, it was one year it was Michael Franti, Spearhead, and Augustana. Another year it was Augustana and Notar. Uh, I don't know which year they're talking about. Um, I think that's Central Park concert. We also did one when Ken Burns released his National Parks documentary. We did a show in Central Park for that, which had a lot of folk artists on it, but I don't remember who was there exactly. Okay, follow-up question. Very good. It's like a press conference now. <laughs> yes, you. I take no responsibility. I, I take no responsibility for this podcast. <laughs> Well, that's a good one. You were surprised. Well, I'd say Mr. Jones surprised us all, but I mean, I don't know. Never really thought about that much. They, it, that stuff just happens. I think I was surprised at the beginning that we had any commercial response at all, really. Uh, but I've always thought, I don't know. We really blew up because we played round here on Saturday Night Live, but I thought we played the living shit out of it that night, and then again on Letterman. So when it blew up, I was like, well, that's cool. We just had done what we do really well, and we did the best we one of the best performances or two of the best performances we ever put on. Um, I don't know. The commercial response is just kind of, uh, I don't think I've ever been particularly surprised by stuff happening or not happening because most of the time it just doesn't happen. Um, I don't know. That's a hard one. I don't, I don't think about it much because most of the time commercial response just doesn't work out. Well, two things, if I could talk about my friend in this way, when I first met him, and then uh, you know, he uh, I noticed that he keeps his gold and platinum records in the bathroom. So I thought that that was some sort of statement he was making. But in a way, he was just saying, you know, you had agreed when the when the gentleman who designed here that if, he's like, you got to put these up, and you said I'll put them up only in the bathroom. And you, when, when you and I got into that conversation a little longer, and you you were like, look. That achievement is the achievement of the record company, the salespeople, radio. You know, I make the record. The record is my. I'm well, yeah, the, the well, sales is kind of dumb luck. You know, the truth of the matter is, people make great records all the time that no one pays any attention to. We know that people well. make crap records that sell gazillions of copies. I'm really proud of making records. Yeah. And and how they turn out. Uh, as far as how they sell after that, I really love it when people buy them. But it, you know, most of the time, people don't buy them. That's just what happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really hard to sell stuff. But I don't have a real, a lot of value attached to that because it just happens sometimes. I, I, don't, I don't know how to like, I don't want to measure myself against that so much because it seems like not the thing I'm proud of the most anyways. I just love it when it happens. You know, it's great to earn money and make money. And when we sell more, we make more money. So that's great because you got to earn a living. And at some point, it's just going to stop happening for us this sort of a career has a very short shelf life the fact that it's lasted as long as it has is kind of a miracle quarter century um, and, and basically we have a we work in a business right now that no one pays anything for you know it's true so th- that's a it's a weird thing to base too much off that 
Seven Samurai by Kira Kurosawa. Our favorite movie. Well, I've said this before. The Graduate is my Great favorite movie. movie of all time. What type of piano do you use? That's a Baldwin over there. Um, it's a good piano. It's just like a basic Baldwin baby grand. There's nothing special about it. I actually really have been wanting to get a really shitty little spinet for the back room. I, I like playing on a quieter, small piano. I like the weird, idiosyncratic noises little pianos make. Um, more than the big grand. When you play it on something that has a big grand sound, it's it, you, you end up writing things to sound grand, and I don't think that's a... That's not necessarily good for the music because it makes everything want to sound like a big grand piano thing, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I mostly don't want things on piano anyways. So, What piano did you write these new songs in England on? Oh, it was just a, a Yamaha keyboard. It was a little keyboard that I, I... you know, It's an electric piano. Did you have headphones when you were writing? No, just turn the speaker on the piano on. Uh, is there a theme to the new Counting Crow songs? Probably, but I, I'm not sure what it is yet. I mean, there are threads I can see in it. Uh, I don't think much about that stuff, except for in retrospect occasionally, and I don't think I'm enough retro to have much of a spec yet, or <laughs> <laughs> perspective yet. Yeah. Um, um, greatest songwriters in rock and roll history. Greatest songwriters in rock and roll history. Jeez. Uh, just rock and roll, not folk or over. Well, that's, that's all the same. I'm just gonna say music. So, uh, we well, gotta shit. start with Dylan and Lennon McCartney. Yeah, I'd you say gotta start there. Um, Townsend, Prince, um, Adam Duritz. Well, I would say uh, also Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson. Oh, now we're going soul. Okay, Stevie well, Wonder. Stevie Wonder, um, Prince, Chuck Berry. Yo, Chuck Berry, especially because not only is it the songwriting, but it's the the riff writing that defines modern rock and roll in a lot of ways that you don't have Jagger and Richards who also have to be up there unless yes. you have Chuck Berry because you don't have the Beatles without Chuck Berry either or a lot of people. Um, uh, he's pretty masterful. I, I think you'd have to include uh, Alan Toussaint who wrote a ton of the music that came out of New Orleans. Uh, uh, Rita Franklin, incredible songwriter. Carol King. Carol King, uh, Lieber and Stoller, some people like all the Brill Building guys, like Neil Diamond, um, Neil Sedaka. People wrote dozens and dozens of hits that didn't sing them. Um, especially Goffin and King, of course. We talked about Carol King, Joni Mitchell. Oh yeah. Um, uh, you got people shouting Billy Joel and Van Morrison at you. Well, Billy Joel, oh. Van Morrison. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, how can Van you stop? wrote some <laughs> great, great songs. Uh, I think certainly. Uh, well, then you have to start getting into Elton like, and Bernie. The guys in Run DMC and uh, De La Soul to me as well. Sure. Chuck D and the guys in the well, it's not just him, but the the, the uh, MCs who put the music together for those records. Um, the, the Public Enemy, the Public Enemy stuff, yeah. and the like. Dr. Dre and those guys for NWA wrote. You know, there's great music in there too. Um, and yeah, then of course you Hank Williams. I mean, where do you you know? There's yeah. a million of them. But yeah. I will say about Jagger and Richards really quick. Even though we're on lightning round, you know, we don't want to leave anybody out. I've always found it curious that Jagger and Richards didn't get as much pub. And it's hard to stay up there with Lennon and McCartney. But when you consider the Stones basically open up as Adam likes to say as a Chuck Berry cover band or a blues cover band, and then they they had like these really raw, great rock and roll early tunes, and then they went into psychedelia. It's kind of kicking and screaming in a way, but they had some amazing, like Painted Black and uh, Ruby Tuesday, 
uh, have you seen your mother baby standing in the shadows? And then to move into that classic period where they jumping where they recreated rock and roll, recreated it for modern rock and roll, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Honky Tonk Women, and the the brilliant albums like Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, which I just wrote a piece about a couple of months ago, and and uh, Sticky Fingers, Exile. This is a massive amount of work, and I know they're known for being just a great band and been around for a while, an excellent live band, and a great fun duo, the Glimmer Twins. But to me, they're Lieber and Stoller. They're Lennon and McCartney. They are, you know. I think one of the reasons for that is that their music is such a product of what it feels like so much the product of a stream of consciousness live environment that I don't think we think about the lyrics as, as much. Being, or being composers. Right. <clears throat> you know, because it just seems like it just happened and it's brilliant and it's incredible music. <laughs> right. But I mean, it, it feels like stream of consciousness stuff that you don't. You don't sit around and look at the lyrics to Gimme Shelter, for instance, or, or Street Fighting Man. Right, Moonlight you know, Mile. That they are great, great writers, but we don't think about the writing where they're concerned sure. as much as the playing. And I, that's pro- you're right. I think that's absolutely wrong. But it's a product of what makes them so good is that that music just seems to have been born, right. fully formed. And so we think about it that way, and we don't think about a composition or a creative process there. Um, it just seems like... Uh, Keith Richards just started playing something, and then they all went along Which is the and case joined in off the top of their heads. With quite a bit of it. But, it, but you, someone sat down and wrote it all down, too, and it's right, brilliant. Right, know? and people forget, Jagger wrote Brown Sugar. He wrote that riff. Everybody always gives it over to Keith. That's his song. Um, and then, of course, Sympathy for the Devil. Have you ever seen that Godard film, which was called One Plus One when I saw it in the late 70s, but now it's called Sympathy for the Devil, where Godard shot the stones writing Sympathy for the Devil or, or trying to record it? It starts off as a folk song. He wanted to write a Dylan-esque folk song. That's why there's a lot of lyrics in there. And then it, it, because the Stones are what they are, they started making a funky groove, then brought it in the congas, and it becomes like this voodoo chant. And yeah. that's the way they created that song. And you're right. It, it, the song that we hear today was recorded in the atmosphere that you're d- describing, but originally it came from Jagger sitting down and record, you know, writing a song about being the voice of Satan. Which is but part of it is that, that that music is so good and so like, it just sounds like literally sat down and someone was playing congas and they just played it. It just ha- fully, it's true. It, it, like it arrived fully formed. And, right. You know, and of course it didn't. But that's, that's what one of the things that's so great about their music thing. is it just seems that way so much so that we forget about any sort of uh, construction that might have gone into it. Right, you know? it's true. Will there be a guest artist on the new song? Will there be a guest uh, artist? I don't know. Uh, well, yes, for one, I, I mean, I've, Dave Drago, who produced Sissy for um, uh, Sean Barna, I, I asked him to ha- kind of take a look at it and see about doing some background vocal stuff on it. Immer composed a bunch of background vocal stuff that we did the other day, but I wanted Dave to take a look at it. I really liked the work he did on Sissy, and those these records seem similar in some ways to me about the, the flavor of it. Um, and I thought he might... I want to see what he came up with, so I sent the stuff to him. So it's possible he'll sing some stuff or help us compose some stuff. you know. And then I, you know, I also wanted to call a few friends and get them. I just... Yeah, I want I want Chris and uh, I'd like Dave Leo Pepe to get on this too because I sang on their records this year. I want them to somehow get on this, but we have to have parts for them, so we'll see. And Sean says he's going to go back in the studio with Dave, which is great. He's got some new songs. Yeah, that are great. I'm excited about that. And he just released, of course, uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher of the Lower East Side. Yes, um, I absolutely love the idea of his his concept of turning Margaret Thatcher into a modern gay icon. It's I think fantastic. is the most wonderful thing ever. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I want to play on a new a podcast. I don't know. Did you get um, Did you get Jackie McLean's cover out? Record? No, I don't have that. He told me, but I haven't listened to any music. Yeah, I got. I don't like to listen to a lot of other music when I'm recording, so I haven't listened to anything. Yeah, gonna, you mentioned it the other day, though. I want. Yeah, to I'm going to bring the CD over because I want to play like three songs. She did a magnificent. Rowan Yellowthorn did a great cover record, um, and uh, we did a trade. I sent her my novel, and she sent me the CD, and I just popped it in one day. 
as my dad's. I'm driving my dad's car now, and he has a CD player in it, which is rare. And I, I just loved it. She chose rare songs. She does a Daniel Johnson cover on there, and she does big songs like um, uh, Beach Boys, uh, uh, God Only Knows, which is very ambitious to do a song like that. But the way she does it and phrases it, it shows that she's really maturing as a singer. So I, I can't wait to play some of that on the podcast. Um, I know Pedal is going to be recording some new music soon. I just saw wow, on that's Instagram. Cool. That's very cool. I'm trying to think of who else. I don't want to miss anybody. Eric Hutchinson's got a new record out, which is fantastic. It's about his time uh, in, uh, it's called Class of 98. He wrote a whole concept album about being in high school. And he made it sound like Nirvana did the songs and these other people. And uh, we did a series of podcasts, and he wants to come on this podcast to talk about it. So I want to do that. Uh, so many different people that we know have got new music coming. Which Oh, oh did you see the... the um, the Matt, remember Matt uh, Susich? Uh, Do I remember Matt Susich? Yeah. Do you remember that guy, Matt Susich? He's a great guy. <laughs> we saw he came to the studio the other night. That's right. I saw the the photo. I was going to say that he's. He, remember the night that we went to. I couldn't get this out. Remember the night we all went to go see him play and they were taping it. Yeah. Um. They uh. They released one of the songs. Him doing Saturn live. Oh yeah. We, we we uh we posted it a couple days oh, ago. Great. Just go to go to YouTube right now and check that out. Matt Susage live with a kick-ass band at uh, Rockwood a couple of weeks ago doing uh, Saturn. First. Well, it's track. right on our. It's right on the Counting Crows Instagram. I'm pretty sure I posted yeah. it on Instagram, or Facebook. It's one of them. It's on maybe on both of them. Possibly on all of them. Twitter too, go on. Ask me a question. Go ahead. Speed round. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do this it. This is a terrible speed round. Um, did you like playing Lino or Letterman more? Oh, Letterman. It's just uh, the Tonight Show is a pain in the ass sometimes because uh, I mean I shouldn't say it's great to play the Tonight Show because it's such a classic thing to play, but uh, music's the last thing on those shows, right? So. What Letterman does is, and most of the shows do, is you, you, they work on their show all day. They film at, say, 5.30. So they have you come in at, like, 4, 3.30 or 4, sound check you at 4.30 or so, and they start shooting at 5.30. So you don't get into the, the late afternoon. They shoot the show, and then you play your thing at the end, and that's it. With, with The Tonight Show, you always had to go in at, like, 10 a.m. They wanted to do you first even though you're not going to do anything till the end of their show. So they would do you first, sound check the band at like 9 or 10 a.m., and then you're supposed to stay there all day till 5. You still shoot at the same time, at like 5.36 in the afternoon. So they would rehearse their stuff after you and then shoot the show with you at the end of it. So it's sort of ridiculous. It's like you'd, you'd have to come in, you know, 10 hours early, um, or maybe it's less than that. It's about eight hours early. But, like, it, it just... Uh, I never understood why they did it that way. It didn't make sense to me. The Letterman way and the way all, almost all the other shows do that. They all do it the same way. You come in late in the day, right before they go to film the show. They sound check you. They camera check you. Then they do the show, and you're at the end of it. It's pretty easy. It's great. It, the, the Tonight Show setup was always – I don't know if it's still that way with Jimmy Fallon. Because when Fallon had the other show, he didn't do it that way. And he's doing it in New York now. Isn't Fallon doing that show in here? Oh, I don't know. I thought he was doing – I thought he, they moved he, the Tonight Show back here. He's such a good guy. I, I can't believe, uh, I, I, you know, years ago, he was dating a friend of mine. And uh, so I got to know him a little bit. And I knew that he had been doing Counting Crows covers on Saturday Night Live, like joke versions of Counting Crows songs, like a long December. I can't remember the lyrics. So we were playing Hammerstein coming up. So I asked him to open the show for us. We had another band open. They asked him to play in between them and us, I think is what he did. So we put him on stage right before we went on stage. And he did a bunch of joke <laughs> versions of songs, including uh, Counting Crows songs. And he, he was great. 
Yeah, no, he's funny. when he does his parodies is great, and you can tell he's a huge music fan. But speaking of which, Letterman is was always a huge mu- music fan. And getting back to Zevon, he was a great friend of Warren and, and dedicated a whole show to him when he was dying, and um, when Warren was dying. And Letterman was. I love that performance of Counting Crows on Letterman. I think you and I both agree it's probably the best of all those. Early. Yeah, it was incredible. It's it, you got to. That's on YouTube. You got to go. I mean, round here we did was, the round here is. But he was just great to us. He he was also my hero because, as a kid oh, growing college? up, oh, yes. when I was in college was when that show was at, you know so like groundbreakingly weird with Chris Elliott as the man underneath the stairs. I mean, to me, Letterman was. I mean, he was just my hero. He was so groundbreaking. And so to get on that show more than anything else, I was so hey great music there. And then he come, he was just so great to us that when we came on for the second album, he let us play two nights in a row. Um, he was just he was magnificent, always just the best guy. Um, I mean, I, I, he's very shy and withdrawn, so he, I, I almost never got to talk to him at all. He didn't talk a lot, but I was so proud to be on that show. Mm. You know, that was amazing. I hate Winnipeg. <laughs> Sorry, that's a song by Sam's friends, The Weaker Thans, which we played on the podcast. Yes, we did. Um, I hate Winnipeg. Uh, Sam is our uh, stage manager, and he lives in Winnipeg. And uh, I'm just happy that they have internet right now, and they aren't like buried under a mountain of snow. Yes. There is a pile of snow in Winnipeg when winter hits, and the city gets blanketed in snow. And the snow plows come through, and they plow all the snow, and they plow it to this big parking lot at the end of town. Hmm. Um, I don't know whether it's a supermarket parking lot or what it's a parking lot for. It's this mountain of snow that they plow from one end of town to the other, and they put the snow all there, and it never thaws. I bet. It's too big to thaw. So even as summer comes, spring, it never thaws, and then winter comes again. I mean, it never completely thaws. Sam tells me it's there all the time. All the time. Yeah. It never, it's, this, it's this mountain of snow that never goes away. That, so you, and when you're in Winnipeg, if you ever woke up and wondered where you were, you'd turn around and you could see in the distance a mountain of snow in the middle of summertime yeah. that will never thaw. And it is always there. And, uh, <laughs> God yeah, bless Sam Offland. Slam. Yes, Sam. The first time Sam I met H. Sam, he had a broken rib and he was still moving equipment. That's because Jim landed on him. Ooh. Oh, huh. Oh. Oh, we say, didn't mention Paul Simon. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, of course. I was going to say American America. Tune in America, America for the ones that have it. The two songs, one the Simon and Garfunkel, one right. the uh, Paul Simon solo song, American Tune. American Tune is the solo one. America is the, Paul, is the Simon and Garfunkel song. Those are as good a songs anyone's ever written about this country. About, about this magnificent. country, yeah. It's um, right up there with uh, Woody Guthrie's uh, This Land is Your Land, which I yeah. think should be the national anthem. Um, that would be a better – that would be a, a, the best possible national anthem. The uh, that's a great question though. This song's about America. I, I'm one of those few people who really loves Pink Houses. I love Pink Houses. I never apologized for the early John Cougar Mellencamp. That's stuff. not early John Cougar. That's like later John Cougar. Well, it's, he started, like, well, he's been around for a million years, but that was probably his fourth album. Maybe more, but that's when he finally became John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah, yeah that's that when album he changed. the one before it. Yeah, Scarecrow uh, and uh, well, that's uh huh. And uh huh, and then right. Scarecrow, right? So that was '85. So he had he'd been out a couple of years. I do true. think that Pink Houses is a great, great song. Me and too. That's the point where I think John Mellencamp became really, really good too. Yes, um, I love that record. He made a few records right then that I thought were absolutely spectacular. Great band. It's a great band. Do you still 
not much lately. When I when I blew my knee out, it got. I still played after that. I blew my knee out when we were touring on uh, Saturday, not Saturday nights, on on recovering the satellites, and it got a lot harder to play after that. We we had a basketball court in the backyard during uh, the making of this desert life, and we played every day for a while. Um, but then, I want to say. Dave almost broke Dan's nose. I think Dan was guarding Dave Bryson, and he he put his head back and smacked into Dan's nose. And we thought we got to stop. We can't be playing this basketball. Also, because you're gonna the problem with basketball is you're always jamming your fingers when someone throws yeah. you a pass, and then you can't play guitar. We had to stop. Um, and I hadn't played for a while, and then we were doing rehearsals in Southern Illinois. I think maybe at Southern Illinois University, we were doing rehearsals for the first. Uh, traveling circus tour and uh so it was us and augustana and michael franti and i had grown up michael you know michael played in college i think at sf state or usf michael was a really good basketball player but we grew up uh, running at hearst courts in north berkeley you know full court run all the time we used to play up there marty jones mr jones too um and we were doing rehearsals and we were sitting around at one point and and michael came and he goes dude I gotta show you something. I was like, "What?" He goes, "Come on, come on." And he took me down the hallways out of the place we were rehearsing, and there was like a basketball gym there with some basketballs. It was the like where they practice gym for the the basketball teams at the college. So we started shooting around and playing. And Michael, who had been up barefoot for a decade at that point, it was the next day he showed up with basketball shoes. He's like, "These are the first shoes I've worn in a decade." <laughs> yeah. But I had stopped on the way there and bought shoes too. And we played for a few days there, but then the same thing happened. You jam a finger, someone gets elbowed, and you're like, ah, we can't be rehearsing for a tour and playing basketball. Right. Yeah. So we stopped again. But also by that time, what I had realized was that my I couldn't jump at all. My knees didn't work for shit for jumping, and I, I just didn't play much after that. So no, I haven't played much in years. But that time with Michael, man, it was really fun because we'd grown up playing together, and here we are, both musicians, both successful, going on tour together. And shooting hoops for the first yeah, time in years nice. together, you know, like it's something we'd done when we were kids and when we were both like when he was in, uh, God, not hip before hip when he was in the Beatniks, you know, I was in Himalayans, you know, when we were kids and here we were, That's cool. you know, playing basketball again. It was a, kind of a great memory. But. It was tough for me to play. I loved playing basketball. It was the one organized sport I played throughout my childhood and coached it in leagues in Brooklyn in the early 90s. Um, once I had glasses because I got the progressive so when i do this like for just a second split yeah. second a key split second i'm not seeing yeah. the basket it's a real i was playing horse with my daughter over the weekend we got a basketball hoop in our driveway and uh, i noticed that quite a bit i got it took me a while though i never really learned because i was afraid i was going to break my glasses for many reasons you know too you know they'd miss a pass or somebody elbow you know whatever so once i got glasses which have been around 41 42 i stopped playing it sucks because i really love basketball oh you know i, I... Brian Dex, Brian's son, Waylon, who I have not seen in years since he was like also a little kid, but he's like a sophomore in high school now. And he throws apparently like an 87 mile per hour fastball, but he tore his labrum uh, early uh, right in the preseason this year. So I hope he's uh, I think he tore his labrum. I hope he's healing up. Well, oh, Waylon, I hope you get better soon. But on the other hand, if there's ever a season to have an injury, this is it. Yeah, they canceled. The season's everything. canceled anyways. Exactly. So uh, but Waylon, get better. Waylon Deck. What a great name for a kid. Waylon, Waylon. Deck. Great name. Comment, there's people who've come in late and missed questions about the tour, people asking about in the country or city. 
We've been planning on touring in the fall, but it's uh, we don't know right now because of everything going on. Your, all of your comments have been seen and noted, but yes, the tour is now. Yeah, well, we, we have no choice. Right now, everything's so up in the air, um, but we're hoping it's still going to go on in the fall. We have not put it on sale yet, but it's it's the the plan and integrated into it is a whole set of performances uh, to go along with the Underwater Sunshine Festival in New York concert at Hammerstein with us. We were hoping to be touring with Frank Turner, uh, which I hope is still happening. I love Frank Turner. I've been reading his books, uh, and he's an artist that I'm a huge fan of. Um, so that's all up in the air right now, though, as is the record release or anything. As with all your lives, with our anything. lives are up in the air. Right. You know, we don't know what's going on. It's me and Immer, mostly. But if someone really wants to play something, we, we listen. Yeah. It's cool. I, I opened the book with the two of those guys because I got to watch it a couple of times on tour, and it, it is fascinating. It's two old friends who know so much about music and know what makes a good show. And as Immer says in the, in the, the scene, um, you know, there's an arc. There's several arcs to a show. And you guys had bundled specific songs to go together, and that's how you build the show out. And it's so great. And then they go through their, their set list from the last time they played that venue and the last night they played. So they make sure they don't play a lot. They'll play signature songs, but for the most part, it's a new set almost every night. And these guys work really hard. It's like watching two guys play chess to try to build that thing. It was really fascinating being in the room. And, I, and hopefully, you know, hopefully the book will bring you in the room with them. But I, I think it's laudable that the band always tries to serve each show specific to that venue not just doing the same review over and over for like 60 shows so which i'm sure that helps the band too right keeps you guys fresh and probably <laughs> well i mean i think we would get bored but I, we, yeah. or, or we or we might just get good at it i mean there are bands that play the same set every night and they probably just get really good at it right it's uh, true. I, I, yeah that's positives and negatives it's just what you want to deal with right Speed round. Here Speed we round. go. Here we go. Speed round questions. What was that website for poetry and writing that you talked about? Uh, Dog Door Cultural. Dog Door Cultural. Yes. Dot com? Dot com. Yes. And you'll read some of my pieces around there. There's uh, essays on music, poetry, short stories, fiction, uh, art reviews, movie reviews, whatever. Yeah. Um, would you ever record with Butch Walker? Oh, Butch. I like Butch. He's done a lot of work with... with uh, with uh, Rob, with Thomas, he did. I think he produced Rob's last record. I, I don't know. I don't know. He did. Yeah, he and did. plays a lot of the instruments on it. Butch oh. Walker. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I did a piece on Rob. I saw him last February. So, um, thoughts on the Chase Center? What's the Chase? Oh, I, I can't wait to go. I, I, I've been I've been dying to go all year, um, and just been busy with. Is that the new things. place in Oakland? It, no, it's in San Francisco. It's oh, the San new Francisco. Warriors uh, venue. Who told me they played there? I think. Uh, Dave, Leo Pepe, I think that Gang of Youth played their opening for somebody. They played Chase Center. I, I would love to go there. I can't wait. Um, someone just made a comment. Brian Wilson, uh, Jay Hansen, Brian Wilson has his piano in the sandbox. What did you come up with the green grass for inside? Green grass in a sandbox. That's true. <laughs> Brian Wilson did. We miss Brian Wilson, by the way, and the great song artist. Um, There's a great movie called The Beach Boys, an American Band. that has a lot of scenes early on of Brian in the sandbox playing uh, specifically Surf's Up. Oh, my God. Because it's, it's filmed so from the work from the making of Smile. It's so uh, good. It's a brilliant movie about the beach. It's a really disturbing movie in some ways, but it's an incredible movie about the, like, it's this, this, you have this dichotomy of, like, the other guys in the Beach Boys are in these stage scenes. Like, you get Mike Love 
I think it's Mike Love walking down the bleachers of a, like a high school football field wearing a Letterman's jacket, and he's like, "In 1964, when the Beach Boys released Be True to Your School, it's like a totally hokey stage thing." Right, right. But then you have these it, clips of Brian in like, bed, right? Very overweight in bed with the covers pulled up to his neck, or in the sandbox, and talking normally, though. playing. Uh, <laughs> playing Surf's Up yeah. or some other song and talking about the stuff he was writing right then but the scenes of him lying in bed with the beard know, and the weird. covers pulled up to his neck and he's like I, at the time I felt like I really couldn't go out of the house very much it was very painful I for know. me the boys went on tour without me Glenn Campbell replaced me in the. it was just really it's an incredible movie because you know it's a great insight into that period yeah. for them Oh, that's a good question. We should repeat it for the podcast. Uh, well, she's wondering if we see anything beautiful in the pandemic. Uh, right. I, I just think it's terrifying, really. I mean, I, I worry. I mean, we'll probably be okay. We're in a very privileged situation. I mean, I, we're okay. We're, we have the ability. I work in a job where I don't have to be at work every day. And my income is not dependent on being at work every day now. I mean, I'm not earning anything right now, really, but... Um, there are people I, I we were we had to take the kittens to get shot the other day and we were driving we were walking for a while on the street and Trader Joe's was it was about 8.30 in the morning Trader Joe's wasn't opening till 10 I think and there was a line around the block people waiting to get in so right off that's they obviously really scared because there's not going to be any supplies and they're out there early but it's unsafe being out there in a group like that um, and I just started wondering, like, what's it going to be like for everyone that works waiting tables, who's bartending, you know, the people or on a level above that, in a way, the people who own small clubs or bars, because, um, you know, they, it's month to month, because however much your your income may stop coming in, rent is an unrelenting thing, especially in a place like New York City. You know, rent, rent is for a where very, you live very, and rent for where you work. Yeah, but both. I mean, you, you could yes. you could lose your club because you have to. You know, if you you have your rent for home, but I mean, you also have to be paying rent every month on a club. That's two sets of rent for people yep. that own places like that. And you know, how are you gonna? I just don't know what's going to happen to a lot of people in our country. You know, it's really scary. Uh, and that's why I want to bring up again uh, my wife's uh, friends. Uh, yoga studio that she worked at she has been working at now for just almost close to a decade highland yoga she she does she's going to be doing um in order to transition to keep this business afloat she has to do digital you know live uh yoga and it's good for you people who love to do yoga you have to go to a studio and sit there you could do it in your home and i think it's great that they're they're offering this but it also keeps her alive because they live paying the bills every month to keep that studio they they're not going to get these months back these weeks are gone yeah. And, you know, it's it's very scary. It, it, well, the funny thing is, though, like like I said before, rent is unrelenting. It's unrelenting. Unless, some, unless people decide to, like, yes. well, I don't know how you do that, but, like, if they give enough of a tax break on a building that the owner decides he doesn't have to get rent, I don't, but I don't see that happening. Um, I, I don't know how they're going to take care of people. I don't know how people are going to survive this who are in certain situations. You know, it, it's a good time to, like, tip a little more. Uh, if you can uh, for something i don't know deliveries uh, yeah it's hard to figure out how the country is going to get through this you know and we're all so intertwined you know 
we all need each other in a lot of ways that we don't think of every day. And I think that will become more and more apparent the more other, the more some people become at risk, we'll see the ways in which it affects all of us. Um, I really, I said this before earlier, nothing to do with politics. I, I don't care about Salute. people's political values or whether you're, you know, a Republican or a Democrat. I, I read a story a little while ago that they talked about just a poll on whether people take this seriously and whether they believe it's a real problem. And one of the things they said was that in a lot of that the the doubt that this is a serious problem among a lot of Republicans is a lot higher than it is among Democrats, and that in red states there's a lot of doubt about whether this is a serious problem. And I would say I don't care who you voted for, I don't care about your political beliefs, but I would really just say please take care of yourselves and take care of each other and take this seriously wherever you live. Um, this is a terrifying thing that's happening right now, and you know, take it seriously. Let's try and get through this together by practice your distancing, wash your hands, stay away from other people if you can, help people if you can. If there are people near you, you know, you, you can't go over to the elderly's house, you risk giving them, you can't go in, you'll risk giving them things. But if there are people near you who are, you know, are going to have more trouble leaving the house, you know, call. Maybe there's a way to help with grocery deliveries or something. I don't know. But everything we can do to help each other right now is a good thing. And the only thing I would say about the beauty part is that the last couple of days I got to see my daughter more than I normally do, which is probably about 40 minutes a day. <laughs> uh, but now I get to see her. You know, she's, going, she's doing her schoolwork in her room, and I'm helping her out. And Although it's, it gets a little harrowing because I have to work and I do other stuff, and I got writing deadlines, it's nice to see my daughter more than 20 minutes a day. So. Today he did it. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, I Brian Fallon's a singer for Gaslight Anthem. Ah. Um, I know he posted some really nice stuff a while ago about uh, about the record, that record, August. Um, but no, I didn't know that. Um, I haven't been. I haven't had much time on social media at all today. Oh, I got to check that out. Yeah. Brian Fallon's version of Round Here. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I didn't, uh, and it really uh, started to hurt me when I got up in, into bands. I couldn't sing as well as I wanted to. My voice got really wiped out playing gigs um, with the, the volume being so loud. So I started taking voice lessons when I was in my 20s, I think, when I started uh, playing gigs with bands. Uh, and I really, it really hurt me when I got out on tour with Counting Crows because I had never... You know, when you're in a band uh, in, at home, in your hometown, you play... You play once a month. You can't really play much more than that because your audience won't support it. You, you, can't, you can't get anyone to come in every night. So it's a pretty big shock the first time you go out on tour and you play in every night or five, six times a week. And your voice has never had to sustain that kind of, you know, stress. And I had huge problems early in our career keeping my voice together and making it from gig to gig. And I, I took voice lessons then. Now I exercise it a lot. before I, I always exercise my voice before. I warm it up. Uh, religiously before I sing. I never sing without warming up. Except for right now. And so. <laughs> um, how has your perspective on being famous changed? Do you have a perspective on being famous? <laughs> well, it was such yeah. a weird thing to start off with in life when it happened. You know, It's an impossible change to adjust to. Uh, at least it was for me. It's just such a weird 
difference uh the feeling of being like exposed and it's like a, you constantly having that dream about going to school in your underwear everyone's looking at you and it's really weird um but you know it's been 28 years 27 years now uh i don't know i, I suppose i just have learned to live with it now i now that i shave my dreads off i i feel come on kind of invisible which is weird and uh i I think I feel less famous all of a sudden because my head is shaved and one of the most recognizable parts of me is gone. And uh, now, now I kind of miss it more sometimes. Well, I would say that a lot of people, like I you know, read uh, Elton's autobiography, and he, he unabashedly admits that when he wasn't in the top ten anymore, it broke him. And you know, he's constantly checking, and he knew. Uh, recently he just um, met a couple of young artists, and he was like, blurting out to them where they are on the charts and they were like how the fuck does this guy know we don't even know this um so elton's always been obsessed with that but then there's other artists like who are true artists you go into something like you did and you go into a, you want to be popular and you want people to play your songs and you want to be able to support yourself and all those things but i i i think over the years that i've spent with you um that was sort of an offshoot of what you do you're going to keep making songs and as long as people like them you'll make them but it doesn't have to be you don't have to be here or here wherever you know you are on the totem pole of fame to define you I've never felt that way since I've known you for a couple of years but I know I I got frustrated with I don't know about frustrated discouraged with being less important that way and being less central to the culture I know that there's a part of you once you've been in the middle at the core of pop culture that way that you want to like, I, I don't really care about my life being that way because that's more annoying than anything else. But I do want my music to be at the center of culture still. Um, and I know I, felt, I know I felt discouraged by that in recent years. Um, but that's an artist response. That's not a vanity response. Well, it's both, though. It is a vanity thing, too. It's both. There's, it's impossible to completely erase that. I don't think, you know, like, I don't give a shit about those records on the wall. But, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, I don't want to measure myself that way, but there's a part of you that does, and it's impossible to completely divorce yourself from the ego parts of it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that I want when I make a record, I want it at the front of Rolling Stone in the review section. Uh, and I, you know, I hated when they didn't do it. You know, well, we had the number one record in the country on recovering the satellites, and I hated that the review was buried in Rolling Stone. I was really furious, but you know, it happens sometimes. You know, it's like you just. You have to learn to live with all those things. Fame is such a weird... Like I've said this a million times, fame is not something you do. It's something other people do to you, and, and you're somewhat at the mercy of it. Um, you can't decide where you're going to be in that strata. Mm-hmm. It just happens. And you can try and do things about it, but you have to learn to live with being in it. You have to learn to live with being out of it. Um, you know, Because there are friends of yours who are doing the same thing I'm doing who have never been in it, you know, but it's, it's just human nature to miss it too. You know, you want to be important. You want it to matter to people. Um, and it does sometimes more than others. You know, it's a, it's a weird thing. I understand. I, the charts are something I, I, I don't care, but I understand why Elton did. Right. You know, I get it completely. I just, it, it, they frustrated me so much that there was no point in looking at them. Yeah, when John Lennon dropped out of the music business for that five years when Sean was born, one of the things he said all the time was, John, I just, it was like a huge exhale. I didn't give a shit if I, it wasn't in the most important thing or I wasn't in the top ten. It was a big relief for him. A lot of times people just want to make 
records and not worry about that kind of thing and just make the record and hope that people like it. But well, I think you want to, when you're making a record, you should not be thinking about that shit. I think it's, it's important not to think about it when you're making the right, record. Right, or what, know, what the end game is, right? You just want to make the record the best you can make it. But I, I know for assume. a fact on our first album, when we, you know, for a long time we weren't even in the top 200. But when we entered it, I know I sure as shit looked at that stuff every week. Yeah, yeah. I like to watch us climbing up it. Right. I wanted to know where we were each week. You know, when we right. went from 213 and ended up at like two, I kept an eye on that right then. Yeah. You know, I, I, I so wasn't not on the individual out. songs on the charts, but I sure record sales I did. Right. You know? Yeah, it's like now I don't even want to look at the stock market. Well, yeah, not right now. Hey. Kid sister! Um, what up? What things did you not take seriously that you wish you did early on in your career regarding fame or health, etc.? Oh, what things did you not take seriously? That you, as far as fame and health, you meant? Did she say? Well, I mean, she I. Said, yeah, regarding fame or health, etc. Oh. I mean, I was so uncomfortable with all the fame stuff that I think in a lot of ways I did everything possible to sort of like not do that stuff and some of it was probably a mistake you know like I know that on our first record <clears throat> Top of the Pops wanted us to come play and I said yes at first but I was really struggling with the discomfort over the idea of lip syncing because back then Top of the Pops didn't let you play live it was just a lip sync thing and I felt really uncomfortable faking things and kind of one of the decisions I'd made was I don't know what the right and the wrong things were to do, but I was really afraid of doing the wrong things and regretting them for the rest of my life and my career. I didn't want to make the wrong steps. And so I said, I don't want to do things that feel fake. Mm -hmm. And eventually I turned down Top of the Pops. And, you know, our, it, the Beatles played Top of the Pops. Every, it was their national Everybody TV did. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have sucked it up for four minutes and faked it because our record company didn't forgive us for 10 years over in England. They, they were so pissed off at us for this incredible opportunity we'd let slip away that they, like, kind of dumped us. And, you know, that was a huge loss. And I, I probably could have sucked up four minutes of feeling like a fake and done Mr. Jones. But I didn't. I was paying a lot of attention to what bothered me right then. And I blew off the national, you know, music program for a whole country that, like, everyone had done for 40 years and it probably would have been fine to do it. Right. Um, and I just was uncomfortable. Not 40 years. At the time, it was 30 years, say. Um, I could have done that and, it, and we paid for that in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, my reasons for it were just that I wasn't comfortable and I didn't want to, I didn't want to have regrets. But now I have that regret. Right. So, you know, you got to balance your own, I don't know. It's hard to do everything right. You make the wrong choices sometimes. That's when you're being you know, young. You know, for me, the real quick one uh, on a lesser scale, I, my first book, Deep Tank Jersey, was supposed to be published by Simon & Schuster, and they sent some editors out, and they wanted to chop what I felt was an important part of the book. What I should have just done is taken the Simon & Schuster thing. I would have had a wider audience. Me, but I fought them on it. I kept it. And strangely enough, over the years, the thing that they wanted to take out are the, is the parts that people have told me over the years is their favorite part of the book. Uh, I, not to get into the details of what it was. So I think I made the right creative decision, but I probably just could have sucked it up and took him out for that and then lived to fight another day and have the larger pu publisher right off the bat. But a small publishing company, Catalou Press in Brooklyn, picked the book up. So it saw the light of day. It's still – I'm very proud of the book, but um, – that was a decision that I made based on, no, I'm not going to – artistic integrity. I didn't know what I was doing. I just felt like that was the right thing. I think I made the right choice for the structure of the book, but maybe the wrong choice for my greater career at the time. Yeah, it's hard to know in those things. It really is. Um, 
But you get into that collaborative stuff with the business people, it gets really dicey trying to figure out what the right thing to do is because so many of their suggestions are clearly the wrong thing. <laughs> um, right. Yep. It's hard to mix business and art, and you have to. Yep. But. Well, thank you guys for for listening and watching. Kid sister in the house. Yes. Should we do a recap of? Oh yeah. So so we. We just got out of the recording studio. We've got four songs nearly finished. We were going to be uh, recording and rehearsing guitars next week, but we're going to postpone that for now because I don't want to make Dave and uh, Dan and Brian and Neil fly across country right now. I don't think it's safe. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, so we'll be, we're, but we're near to finishing up a new record. It's just an, it's an EP. It's a four-song suite of songs. Uh, we are still hoping to tour in the fall, but... As I'm sure you understand, everything is up in the air right now. And uh, integrated into our tour was going to be a whole series of performances in New York, uh, uh, sponsored and promoted by Underwater Sunshine Festival, and including Underwater Sunshine Festival. Uh, so I'm hoping we get to all of that in the fall and October for the festival stuff in, in particular. Um, but we'll see. And uh, we'll we'll be back. We're going to put a couple of... I think this is episode 97 of our podcast, so we'll put 98, 99 will be probably garden session stuff. And then uh, episode 100, uh, I think we'll come back here and try and get Immer to come with yeah, us and yeah, do sure. a, uh, a live podcast again. And then we got to re-record those other ones that we want to do. Yes, yeah, so we'll be yes. doing those as well. All right, so this is the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm James. Peace. No, you say peace. <laughs> peace. Late. Bye. <laughs> That's right, I forgot. <laughs>